episode 80 of Bike Live, we have decided to honour a gentleman's agreement. No interruptions whatsoever. Let's see how long that lasts. Welcome back to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, indeed. This is episode 80 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 as we look back. Uh, on the Aragon Grand Prix in MotoGP, the penultimate European round of the season, which took place last weekend um, in Spain. We will look back on all the action from all three classes. There was plenty of it um, as the championships um, took another interesting turn um, in all three classes. We'll talk all about Mark Marquez's return to winning ways, his first victory since the Saxon Ring back in July, um, as he took one step closer to a fifth, um, a fifth MotoGP title and his fourth in a row. Um, we will also look back on the Moto2 action uh, as that championship took another turn. Francesco Bagnaia's way, even though KTM did end up winning the Grand Prix last weekend, but it wasn't the rider they'd hoped. Um, we'll also discuss Moto3. Uh, Marco Bezzecchi's title hopes appear to have hit a brick wall, no pun intended, on the Saturday, um, but he did recover to salvage his hopes on the Sunday, even though it was another masterclass from the front. Um, by Jorge Martin. Um, we'll also bring you all the big news this week as one Brit has been announced for Moto2 next season. Uh, one Brit has been kicked out before the end of this season. Um, and we'll tell you a big rider signing for 2019 in the British Superbike Championship, which may have caught you, and it certainly caught us, by surprise. Uh, we'll look ahead to this weekend. BSBR in action. They head across on the ferry to the Netherlands for their round at Assen, the penultimate race weekend of their season. And we will look ahead to what could well be a history-making weekend in World Superbikes with the Super Sport 300 and Super Stock 1000 championships guaranteed to be decided. And we could also be crowning the first ever four times consecutively four times World Superbike champion in Jonathan Ray. Um... As I mentioned, um, we uh, we were trying to uphold some sort of gentleman's agreement, but joining me is a guy who never really subscribes to those. It's Andre Harrison. Dre, welcome. I don't believe in gentlemen's agreements. I stick to the facts, and <laughs> and I interrupt when I feel necessary. Um, again, the fact you've lasted this long is a miracle in its own right. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to episode 80 of Mike Live, everybody. And uh, yeah, like it's, it's actually kind of interesting, because this wasn't like a blow your socks off sort of MotoGP weekend in general, but uh, a lot of interesting stuff to come out of all three races and a lot to definitely worth talking about. So, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Yeah, they weren't exactly lights out thrilling races, but they were probably all sort of solid seven out of ten races um, mm. in the end. Um, races that, um, if we hadn't had Assen or, or things like that, or Argentina this year, we'd all be talking about what a great race that was. Uh, it was another great battle in the end between Marquez and Davizioso, uh, but as you'll hear in the uh, in the upcoming segment, it didn't go the way as their previous battles, um, as Marquez got the W um, this time. Before we come to that, though, let's tell you about the various places you can find us, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, you are at, uh, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Um, on YouTube, um, where if you're looking for your eye candy, you can watch us in vision, youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Dre and King did a hangout on Saturday night, which you can still watch uh, over there. Um, there's a new Dre brief as well heading up there. Um, if not, by the time you're listening to this, it will probably be already up, my man. Soon after. There you have it. Um, and our website is motorsport101.com, where you can find written content as well about the various championships we cover on our two 
sister shows. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, uh, you can do that on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101, where if you back us at the $5 level, you get us early access to our two weekly shows. Back us at $10 a month, and you can listen in live uh, on Discord, as a number of you are doing uh, right now. And a good evening to you on this Thursday night, um, on the 27th of September. Um, if you are listening live on uh, Discord, you may well have already listened to episode 162 um, of Motorsport 101 uh, that took place uh, earlier this week. Um, if you haven't, you can download it right now. Um, Andre, it was a review of uh, of an intriguing uh, indie, uh, IndyCar season, which obviously was won in the end uh, in the finale at Sonoma by Scott Dixon. But although... That's a, that's a sentence we've said before. Scott Dixon wins IndyCar title. It was certainly an interesting journey to get there. Oh, definitely. Uh, we named it the Ice Age because, after all, what killed the dinosaurs? Um, but, uh, yes, episode 162 of Motorsport 101 is up now. And if you get the movie reference I just mentioned, give yourself a pat on the back. Well played. Um, but, uh, yes, episode 162 of Motorsport 101 is live right now by the time this goes up. Um, yep, yeah, we've called it the Ice Age. It's the 2018 IndyCar season review. Me. Ryan King, RJ O'Connell, and Chris Harde, who, you know, took time out of his busy schedule of microwaving himself a snack. You'll, you'll hear what I mean in, in the show itself. But um, it was a it was a great season review. We, we, we reviewed an up-and-down, pretty darn solid IndyCar season. I mean, again, I don't think there was one particular race that blew everybody's socks off, but it was just a great season of consistently solid racing. The new aero kits, um, I think, definitely made their mark in a positive light. Um, we go through it team by team, the highlights, the lowlights, like some elements like Alex Rossi's ridiculous Indy 500, Robert Wickens stealing the show in the early season, um, Sebastian Bourdais' brilliant comeback in Ohio from 24th to 6th. Um, you know, we, we go up and down throughout the field. It's, it's a great time. We also, you know, preview a little bit of the 2019 season and a lot to look forward to, like the Circuit of the Americas being added potentially a 28 car field for next year which which uh, is a uh, terrifying the possibility of a uh, car and maybe running three cars del coin maybe running three cars even with a couple of f1 guys you may have heard from in the last year or so who knows um we break down all of that um a lot to look forward to it's a two-hour special edition of motorsport 101 um reviewing the 2018 indycar season review it is out right now hmm. giving dre a bit of sweet relief from the uh, the weather formula one season starting to go um, but um, just in reference to the um, the inverted commas blooper that Dre kind of referred to there, I actually did Chris Stardy a solid and didn't actually include it. Um, but <laughs> if, um, if you, um, with the uh, beauties of the way OW Audition works, I was able to mute it out. But um, if you listen to our um, blooper, which will probably come in our Christmas show in a couple of months' time, um, yep. we'll, in- we'll include it in there. I may even put it on the uh, Discord server as a sort of uh, Patreon exclusive um but uh yeah it's 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 quite a funny one um in that um yeah uh appears meals will be made whilst uh whilst podcasts will be made at the same time who says we can't multitask around here um of course yeah, episode episode 162 of most what 101 is live right now and we will look ahead to episode 163 not that drape technique wants to uh, at the end of the show um as formula one heads to sochi um right then let's uh, head to aragon um for our review of last weekend's moto gp the penultimate european round of the penultimate spanish round um of the season um and before we get into the ins and the outs of it dre um it, it was touted as a marquez track and 
in many ways, he delivered on that promise. He had a corner named after him pre-race weekend, and he was given the option of which corner he liked, and he picked the uh, the long left-hander at Turn 10, um, which is a pretty good call, it has to be said, of which corner to name after uh, the high-speed left-hander, which Marquez specialises in. Um, and although he had one corner named after, named after him, he pretty much owned the whole circuit on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like Marquez was brilliant. He, and again, we, we we held this as a Marquez track going in, and um, <clears throat> especially given he'd won the previous two um, here as well in 2016 and 17. But uh, yeah, you could be completely right. But this was a very different sort of Marquez race where you know it's become the story of the last couple of years that you know Marquez has maybe dialed down the level of aggression a tad, and he's become a bit more of a championship protector in that sense where he's been blessed with a very fortunate lead in the early going um and that he's you know given he's got a 60 plus point lead for some time he's he's gone out of his way to make sure he's defended it and he said he said after the race he chose to gamble this weekend and he did because it was a last minute call on the grid he put the the soft compound rear tire on which is something that he never does um like he normally runs a hard hard or medium on the rear because that he's, he's always liked that feel he's always been a bit unsure about having a, a front tire that's anything other than than the hard or medium tire so um he gambled on this one and it was a very different sort of race it was a race where dovi was in control for the vast majority of it um and it turned into more of a a, a tire saving sort of race cat where mouse here, it? It, yeah exactly it was cat and mouse. You towards a dovi win yeah, exactly. When it gets tactical, you tend to think Dovi's going to win because you're thinking, okay, he's leading the race, he's, he's dictating the pace. He's Marquez is he's, Marquez on a soft tire knows he's going. He just has to sit there and pick his moment, basically. And he did with two laps to go, but until then, Dovi was in control. He was out there leading. He he, he did a solid job out there. He was saving his tires towards the end of the race. Not that it mattered in the end because Marquez put a move on him with two to go. And he was, he was like, okay, I'm going to put the hammer down now, see if you can chase me. And, he, and Dovi just did not have the legs in him to be able to do it. It was a it was a cat and mouse sort of race. The tactics of it, you know, brought the Suzukis into play a little bit. With, with um, We'll mention them in a minute with Ian Oni and uh, Alex Rins running close behind. Um, but it ultimately did not matter because Marquez just had an extra tenth and a half in the back pocket for the end of that race. And it wasn't his usual ultra-dramatic self, but it was a brilliant race nonetheless, and Marquez basically beat Dovi at his own game, and he did it in, in, in fantastic fashion. He did. A uh, tremendous win for Mark Marquez. If you watched the race last Sunday, or if you've just read anything about it and the, the overriding story from last weekend, um, you'll notice we've not mentioned something. We can put it off no longer. We have to talk turn one. Um, and uh, oh, no. we got. We, in fact, we have to go back to Saturday because we shouldn't forget that in a... In another race we came to, and we've already discussed, it's a bit of a Marquez track. Ducati were one and two on the grid again. Um, Indeed. With, with, all, with all the other ends on pole position from Andrea de Vizio. So Mark Marquez, who made a mistake on his final lap of Q2, when basically all 12 riders on a massive two-minute lap managed to find themselves in the same piece of racetrack and held each other up. Um, because Lovely. traffic. Because slipstream. Um, and uh, Mark Marquez made an error, lost any hope of a final flying lap, lost half a second, and Lorenzo and de Vizio, so relegated him to third on the grid. Lorenzo, though, um, trying to do his usual trick, I suppose, of getting the whole shot and then clearing off, which, um, had he done so, we'll never know, may well have worked. and may well have been a tactic that would have won him the Grand Prix in the end. Um, he was beaten to the apex of Turn 1, Dre, and that's where the problem started. 
Yeah, I think Marquez wins the battle for the Apex on turn one. Lorenzo, quote-unquote, pushed out ride. Um, Lorenzo loses the front um, on the dirty part of the outside of turn one. Takes a big high side, to be fair to him. His airbag goes off in midair if you watch it in slow motion. So the, the airbag's detected he's going to have a big one. Um, he's been high-sided off. Um, crash lands on, on, on the canvas, basically. Um as a result, he's he's broken his he's broken his metatarsal as a result. He's got the full Wayne Rooney injury, which isn't great. Um he's now a doubt for Thailand next weekend. We'll, we'll obviously we'll more on that on post likely on next week's show because he'll be he'll be taking a test for his fitness on Thursday. But uh, yeah. Shall we say Lorenzo was not best pleased with Marquez after that incident? And yeah, we'll break it down again in a, in a second now. But uh, yeah, like Lorenzo wasn't happy about that. Claimed Marquez had ruined his entire race and maybe Thailand too. In the heat moment, it, uh, it it wasn't it wasn't kind comments. Let's put it that way. Mm. And uh, here are the quotes co- he question from Jorge Lorenzo um, from from Autosport. Um, Jorge Lorenzo, who suffered a dislocated toe, um, as I already mentioned, and a fracture of the second metatarsal on his right foot. Um, in the accident, in the high side, um, says, from the outside, it looks like I entered too fast, leaned too much, it entered too wide on the dirty part. That's why I crashed. For what I experienced, I entered on the normal line, as I did the last seven years, but I watched Mark go into the inside very aggressively, not making the corner, because you saw where he finished, on the green. Um, Mark is running wide on the exit and going onto the green uh, tarmac on the outside. He actually lost the lead on the outside, outside of the corner to Dubitioso. Um, mm-hmm. after that move. Um, Lorenzo continues to say, when he saw I was there, he tried not to let me pass into the corner, and I didn't have any option but to go to the dirty part. Because we were very wide and the other riders were already coming, if I didn't want to lose five or six positions, I had to open the throttle. In Mizano, the crash was completely my fault, the crash which took Lorenzo out with a couple of laps to go. Um, this time, Mark destroyed my race, destroyed my foot, destroyed also the big possibility I had to win, and probably also my Thailand race. Um... Lorenzo said he felt more upset when the start was replayed because he believes that it made it look more like his own error. He said it's not like that, and Mark knows it. He didn't leave me space. He made another block pass like in the past in some races. I didn't have any options other than crashing, crash, or go outside the track. He didn't want me to enter the corner, and he didn't care about me. Just make the corner, break very late, and just don't think about the exit of the corner, just entry, and forget about my line. Um, Marquez then has his right of reply in, but he says that he saw it as a racing incident. Um, to, to paraphrase uh, what he said. Um, now, there's a lot of what Jorge Lorenzo said that I agreed with, in that it was a, it was a block pass from Marquez. He wasn't really thinking about where Jorge Lorenzo was going to put his bike. Um, but it's turn one of a race race, so all 24 bikes are going to go into the same corner on the same piece of racetrack at the same time. And with the greatest respect, as long as he doesn't run into him, should Mark Marquez really care where Lorenzo puts his bike? Like, okay, if you're if you're helping, if your visor is down and you've just had the green flag and you've picked your line for the corner, given where he was on the track, because Marquez was almost in the lead going into turn one, he's not going to think about where Lorenzo's put his bike. Of course he isn't. Like, let's be realistic about this here. Like, of course he's not going to be thinking about where Lorenzo is. Okay. To a degree, Lorenzo is right. Marquez was totally thinking about the entry and not thinking about the exit, because as you saw, he did run wide and he did stand the bike up on the exit of turn one. But you're allowed to block pass on the opening lap, and that's the whole point. Like, yeah, Marquez has got every right to put his bike where it is, and if anything, he won the corner because he got to the apex first. 
He's not going to think about where Lorenzo is. There was no contact made. I don't think Lorenzo was ever within more than maybe three yeah, feet of them. close to hitting each other. No, they weren't even close to being contact. Like, block pass normally assumes someone has put put their bike on a part of the track where the other guy can't get to. This is not what this is not the case of Lorenzo. Lorenzo was nowhere near Marquez on track. So I I don't see where Lorenzo is coming from to say that this was Marquez's fault and Marquez destroyed his race. I I can't get there on that one. I really can't. Not in a month of Sundays. And like if Lorenzo was that worried about it and he was that worried about opening the throttle up if he knew that was the dirty part of the track, he should have stood the bike up. Like better that than than open the throttle, risk a high slide, which is exactly what he did, and end his race at turn one. Live to fight another day, Jorge. Like like given the bike he was on, I don't think it would have been the end of the world if he fell to eighth or ninth place. Mm. Like and, I said, and, it, and it's like if you look at the because I've, I've got I'm on my TV, which obviously you guys can't see at the moment, but if you if you go back and watch the slower replays of it um, from the sort of outside of turn one, just as they reach the apex, um, Marquez and Lorenzo are both way out wide. They are the widest riders of the of the, the twenty four going to that corner. Everyone else is on the inside of them. In fact, Davizioso is about. I don't know. It's difficult to sort of quantify it from a TV screen, but I reckon he's a good five to ten meters to the left of them, um, and he's and he's up the inside, and obviously Davizioso gets out of the corner in the lead, which is kind of what Dre's saying, and that's kind of what Lorenzo should have done. Um, mm. In that Lorenzo was Lorenzo would probably say I was already starting to tip it in, and then obviously saw Marquez coming and had to sort of stand the bike up and just run out wide, but Lorenzo loses the rear. It then starts to grip again, and that's what fires him over the top and high sides him, um, and. Lorenzo has then subsequently, and I think he's kind of climbed down from this a bit since Dre, uh, yeah. where there were there were there were comments that were flying around on social media that Lorenzo has essentially um, asked, and this is kind of what I referenced in the intro that there should be some sort of gentleman's agreement among the riders that there shouldn't be block passes of this nature during a Grand Prix. Um, which, first of all, good luck enforcing that because unless it's an actual <laughs> regulation by you know written in the regulations, there are always going to be riders who will just ignore it. That's just the way they are. They're competitive animals. Um, but equally, should that even be a thing, Dre? Because surely block passes are as much a part of racing as anything else. They may not necessarily be for the purists. They may not necessarily be particularly right. um, you know, easy on the eye. They're a bit brutal. They're a bit aggressive. They're a bit abrupt. But they're, they're part of racing, surely. I mentioned and talked about this before we went on the air. Uh, probably the most famous block pass incident of all time was the famous Rossi Gibbonau Haref 2006 moment. Um, Rossi basically barges Gibbonau off the line and Gibbonau puts it in the gravel and Rossi goes on to win the race. Um, let's not forget, back then, race direction felt there was no need to punish Rossi for that incident. The precedent was set right there and then. Like, as far as I'm concerned, you can't punish a block pass unless it's really, you know, put put the health of a rider at risk. As far as I'm concerned, like, block passes are legal. And as far as I'm concerned, you can't really get rid of them. Because, again, as you said, good luck enforcing that because what, what by definition is a block pass? Um, like how would you how, how would you quantify that to, to make it worth a, make it worth punishment? That's the first problem I think you have with this. I think the second problem you have with this is that, like as you say, riders are going to ignore this. Like, do you think someone Andre, like an Andrea Rianoni is going to go? Of course, he's going to go for it because it's a race win at stake. 
for example, of course they're going to go for it. That's part of the beauty and the brutality of bike racing. Like, this is this is not ballet. This is a gladiatorial sport where riders are going to use their motorcycles as weapons. If we, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have moments like Tony Elias winning an Estoril in two thousand six, or the, the drama of Rossi not only at Gibbonau, you know, in Jerez, but also the Marquez one in twenty fifteen, the most famous moment maybe in MotoGP history. It's an it's an element of the sport that is ingrained into our brains as fans. It is a part of what we watch. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Like, I have great respect for Jorge Lorenzo for being a rider of finesse and being true to his riding style to the bitter end. I mean, he's been he's been campaigning against this sort of thing for years. Back back when you know, God rest his soul, Marco Simoncelli was still around about aggressive riding, and you know, he was he had no problem embarrassing himself in front of press conferences to say, "No, I think you're going too far here." Mm. And he's he's been that guy for seven eight years now and i think he always will be i think he's one of those guys that believes in the purity of the race and i will always respect that approach but unfortunately he is a scalpel in a world of sledgehammers as cam in the discord said earlier like that is that is the unfortunate reality of bike racing and as much as i commend lorenzo's honor to you know say that you know maybe we shouldn't have block passes unfortunately i feel that's coming from a guy that's probably been the victim yeah. of quite a few of them over the that years was and what i think I was that's gonna probably... say. i mean i i, yeah, I used the i used the word i used the word soft to describe Jorge lorenzo before we started which which i admit may not be the best words to use to describe him um because no motorcycle racer can really be described as soft um but but what i mean by that is that um just go back to several races you can go back to in history. You can argue Assen earlier this year was one of them, um, mm-hmm. where Jorge Lorenzo led for a long period. But I think a lot of riders feel, Dre, that if you beat Jorge Lorenzo up, if you disrupt his rhythm, if you block pass him, you you beat him. Um, because because right. that is where Jorge Lorenzo gets disrupted and he struggles to recover from it. Um, and and Jorge Lorenzo's very style as a MotoGP rider, ever since he came into the sport... Um, and it's one of the reasons why it took him so long to figure the Ducati out was that Jorge Lorenzo's style is not to break late. It's to break early, let off the speed as you go into the corner, carry the speed through it and be smooth. Um, yeah. And that's why he got the best out of the Yamaha. So so when he jumps on the Ducati where you've got to try and break as late as possible, he can't really do it or he, it's not exactly second nature to him to do it. So obviously that's not going to lend itself to block passing people because you're not used exactly. to breaking. You're not the last of the late breakers uh, in the end. And Jorge Lorenzo's popularity has never exactly been particularly high. Not when you compare him to Mar- Marquez for even, certainly when you compare him to Valentino Rossi. He's been the villain. He's always been seen as the villain. A lot of the times, I think, unfairly so. Um, yeah. But, but I think in a case like this, Dre, um, I don't think he helps himself because I'd liken this to um, the, the recent uh, Ferrari in football surrounding Wilfred Zaha. Um, who has yeah. come out and said that referees don't protect him enough. He doesn't get enough protection. Um, mm. He feels that someone would have to break his leg for him to get a, a, a free kick off or someone to be sent off. And a lot of people said straight away after that, they said, well, you know what's going to happen to him now? Teams are going to be telling their defenders, all you have to do is kick Wilfred Zaha and he won't fancy it. And I think a lot of riders now will be looking at Hulk and Lorenzo's comments from last weekend, Dre, they'll be thinking, well, if we send a block pass on him, he's going to jump out of the way because he doesn't fancy it. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a very fair comparison, and it's a shame because I think Wilfred did have a point in those yeah. comments last week. So when he comes up with football, that yeah, playmakers don't tend to get those sorts of calls because, like the, the Neymars, the Hazards, the Wilfred Sahars, the technical footballers out there that can out dribble defenders, then they're, they're never going to get the right amount of calls because they don't want the refs don't want to stop a game every two seconds because of a foul, even if it is a fair challenge and even if it is a foul and. You're right. Like but You've gone like, public with one of your big grievances, which to your rivals will be seen as a weakness. Exactly. It absolutely will be seen as a sign of weakness. It absolutely will. Because, like, Lorenzo, again, Lorenzo was, like, again, as you mentioned, he's probably been the biggest victim of block passes in the last few years because the guys he's competed against over the last few years have mostly been a lot more aggressive than he has. Valentino Rossi is willing to go down that road to win a race. Mark Marquez is willing to go down that road to win a race. Andrea Davizioso is riding style. He's a, he is a demonically late breaker. Um, so, like, he can go to those lefts to win a race. Yeah, like, you can't block past Dovi because he is such a late breaker. You're going to have to basically run man off the apex to have a chance to beat him so if those are the sorts like casey stoner was the same stoner was another aggressive rider as well that had no problem breaking as hard as he dared and then trying to basically use his brute strength to, to missile the thing around an apex lorenzo's not been like that lorenzo has always been an apex speed guy and like as you say lorenzo is not known for late breaking he's known to break earlier so that that opens the door it is one main weakness as a rider you can metaphorically punch Lorenzo in the nose and beat him that way. And now he's come out and come out of it publicly and said, you know what, we should blank block, blank block passes. You know what's going to be funny? Valentino Rossi is going to be laughing in his Yamaha pit garage as soon as he heard that comment. Because this, because you know what, it happened last year. Remember, Miss, I think it was a couple of years ago. I'm just going to say that bizarre where they argued in the press conference. Yeah, and Rossi just laughed it off. Rossi completely, like, like, it was a very similar case where Lorenzo was arguing about, oh, why is Rossi block passing me so early in a race? And L Rossi just laughed the whole thing off. <laughs> he really did. He had no respect for what Lorenzo had to say. It's like almost the carbon copy scenario to what, what happened on Sunday, where a guy has blocked past him early and it's gone against, like, the sanctity of bike racing, where apparently block passes are only allowed in long laps of a race when that strictly speaking is not true and don't get me wrong there's a level of hypocrisy in that because valentino has been guilty of this before as well he's blocked past people early so apparently 2015 springs to mind but like the code doesn't really exist and lorenzo putting that out there has made him a big fat walking target for anyone that's willing to be able to try and block passing because they know that lorenzo will get out of the way he's not he's not going to engage in contact like Valentino Rossi will, like Mark Marquez will, like Andrea Davizioso is capable of doing, like Andre Rianoni's done in the past. It goes on. Like there are more there are much more aggressive riders in the field than him. And Lorenzo will be punished for it with his style of riding, especially if he's going to keep complaining about it every time he's the victim in it. Yeah, I've just got the transcript in front of me actually from because I was just thinking of that very incident when you mentioned it. Mizano two thousand and sixteen. Um, yep. The last the last year that Lorenzo was with Yamaha, where Danny Pedrosa famously won. Um, and um, Rossi and Lorenzo were asked about a, a move that Rossi put on Lorenzo, I think at that turn 14 hairpin, the third from last corner, um, yep. Mizano, where Rossi overtakes Lorenzo early on. Essentially, a block pass. 
Um, uh-huh. And the question is asked, oh, a question for Valentino and Jorge. The maneuver from Valentino in the very early stages of the race was incredible. This angle, was this what you planned or was this just the occasion to ha- attack Jorge so early? And I also want to know the view of Jorge of this maneuver if he has been surprised. Uh, I won't give you Valentino's Rossi's reply to it because it's, it's not really what, the, what we're talking about. But Lorenzo then says, well, if you ask this question, it's because maybe the move is aggressive. No, because if not, you don't ask this question. You can have different opinions. My opinion was that the overtaking was maybe too aggressive. He didn't need to make this overtaking, but you know, it's his style. Other riders overtake more clean. To which point, Valentino Rossi starts laughing. Um, and, and the uh, and the argument starts from there, where basically Lorenzo says it's true, Rossi disagrees, and uh, it to and fro from there. Lorenzo tells him to respect his opinion and so on. Um, Rossi brings up the uh, overtaking that Marquez did on him at Silverstone the race before when they had that brilliant battle there. Um, mm-hmm. And Lorenzo finishes off their sort of tete-a-tete by saying, um, for me, if I don't put straight the bike, I crash. For me, he didn't need to do this overtaking. He was better today. He will pass me anyway sooner or later, but he didn't need to be so aggressive on me, I think. But anyway, he will have another opinion, of course. Um, and again, it lays bare again that Jorge Lorenzo, just when it comes to this, he I don't know whether it's it is aggression or what it is, Dre, but it just seems that other riders are prepared to go that extra level in terms of aggression that Jorge Lorenzo just either can't or won't go to. And... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just struggle to see how Lorenzo is. It's honourable. Don't get me wrong. It's an honourable way to go out your racing. But is there really when sure. you're talking about a cutthroat sport like this? Surely you don't race. It's the old spirit of the rules, isn't it? Surely you don't race to the spirit of the rules. If you really want to be the best in your sport, you go as far as possible to the absolute letter of the law to win. And it doesn't seem as if Holgate's prepared to go that far. Yeah, like I said, it's 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 cliched. He rides really by his is. own personal code rather than the actual rules that are in place yeah he's basically batman at this point and no one really wants to be batman unfortunately um where it's like oh i'm not going to kill anybody even though you keep wondering why the same villains keep breaking out of arkham asylum that's basically lorenzo at this point like like listen maybe if he killed the guy maybe this would stop sort of the problems but like like as as cam puts in the discord chat lorenzo's code is not going to get him any respect because like, two years ago was the perfect example. Rossi block, parks, block passes him at the hairpin. It goes against the sacred code of bike racing where block passes aren't allowed until the last 5% of a race. And again, when Lorenzo calls him out on it, Rossi laughs in his face. And again, it's not the first time that's happened to Jorge. Marco Simoncelli laughed in his face when it was brought up back in 2010. Like, you know, Pedrosa's been caught in incidents like this before. Like, again, we all know the lengths that Marquez can and will go to to win races. Valentino Rossi, of course, has done the same thing. That is what elite-level sportsmen do. And not to say that Lorenzo isn't that guy, because Lorenzo is one of the best bike riders of all time, no matter which way you slice it. He's an incredible bike rider in his own right, and he's done things his way, and that's worked for him on numerous occasions. But... He's not a dogfight sort of guy. He never really has been. He's always been the guy that gets the whole shot and then tries to go as fast as he possibly can um, all all the way to the end, basically. And then once the metronome gets going, you can't beat him for raw pace. He's not been the guy that is known for, 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 you know, bleeding dogfights and getting in punch-ups and winning the aggressive way like Rossi's done before, like Marquez has done before, you know, like that sort of rider has done in the past. So, yeah, like, 
Lorenzo, it's it's the tragic it's the tragic tale of either dying a hero or living long enough to see yourself become the villain. As cliche as it sounds, that's what Lorenzo is. He's trying to uphold the level of honor in a top tier sporting environment that just doesn't follow that code, unfortunately. And again, as you say, it's honorable, and I respect the fact he's willing to do things his way. He's not going to change just because you know people around him are winning their way. And Lorenzo sticking to his guns and, you know, more power to him for doing that. It takes a brave person to do that. But unfortunately, there's going to be other guys in MotoGP that are going to bully him off an apex. And it will be his own detriment. If he, if he wants to go against that, then more power to him. But he's going to lose those fights. And, you know, if that's... I, I, I just find it a little bit naive that this is... Um, you know, this is like a decade of him in the top flight now, and he's still thinking this. I think it's, I think it's a little bit naive at this point from Jorge, to be honest. Mm. And, and like, as I said earlier, I think that when we go to Buriram in, in, in a week's time, um, or particularly Mategi, which has a lot of uh, long straights into into big stops and heavy, you know, heavy breaking stops and hairpins, if Jorge Lorenzo is in a battle on track with, dare I say it, Mark Marquez, his teammate next year, let's not forget. Um, or Davizioso, or anybody who he's on track with. That rider who's behind Jorge Lorenzo is going to be thinking, if I block past him, he's going to jump out of my way. Um, and, and I don't think that's really... I think that's why, more than anything else, that Jorge Lorenzo shouldn't be coming out and saying this. Say it. Um, I don't even think he should be saying this in behind closed doors because it's not going to lend him... It's No one's going to, you know, agree with his point of view and you know, he's not going to win enough... It's not going to be a groundswell of support that will allow that, this to actually happen. Um, so yeah, Mo- yeah MotoGP fans live for this sort of aggression. They're not going to say the other riders see it as they'll see it as a, as a mental advantage over him. Um, and... Like I said, he's been he's been doing this for for eight years now. He's been yeah. complaining about riding standards, and no one's listened. That should be the red flag to Lorenzo right there. You know what, mate? They're not going to do what you tell them to do, mate. Simple as that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think of I mean I know I know cars is very different because I think Holly Lorenzo sees obviously. From a motorcyclist point of view, that it's a lot more dangerous because you know when two cars hit each oh, other into a hairpin, it's much more dangerous. They have two less dangerous, sorry, than two bikes do. Um, but I mean, if block passes were outlawed for motorsport, Daniel Ricciardo would be stuffed, wouldn't he? Um, of course, he pretty much lives by them. And I think some of the block passes, some of the desperate last of the late breakers moves that we've seen in in cars and in bikes, they're some of the great moments of this sport that we've seen. Um, and I, I don't think you'd ever want to see that go away. Um, so yeah, I just think Jorge Lorenzo's He's on a hiding to nothing by saying things like this. It's not going to get him any respect, as, as Cam's already said in the chat, nor is it going to get anywhere near the level of support, of support that he wishes for it to actually become some sort of regulation further down the line. Um, so, uh, so Jorge Lorenzo didn't take any points from the end of it because he got uh, high-sided into the sky and uh, broke his toe, which means he may not race yet um, in Thailand next week. We shall see. As Dre mentioned, by the time we uh, record episode 81 next week, uh, we may well be able to tell you and if Jorge Lorenzo is racing in Thailand or not. Um, Andrea Vizioso certainly will be uh, on the factory Ducati. And it's funny how, having seen Lorenzo win as he did in Austria, um, Davizioso has kind of wrestled back the control within his team again um, from Jorge Lorenzo. He's certainly taken control in the battle for second in the championship, um, partly due to Lorenzo's back-to-back non-scores. Um, and... Mm. Valentino Rossi's problems, which we'll cover, or more to a point, his team's problems, which we'll cover uh, later on. Davizioso is 15 points clear of Valentino Rossi now in second place, and 44 clear of his teammate Jorge Lorenzo. 
um, which, considering he scored 45 over Jorge in the last two races, shows you how close it was between them. Um, it's not anymore. Uh, Davizioso's not going to win this championship, Dre. That's clearly going to go to Martin Marquez. But Davizioso, um, to his credit, and I think he'll take great heart from this, as having been so inconsistent and made some silly errors earlier in the season, he has pretty much backed up what he did last year and confirmed to us all that he is clearly the number two rider in the sport today. Yeah, this this year has proven that last year was no fluke. I mean, again, last year was a massive surprise to everybody in motorsport how Dovi had turned himself from, you know, the veteran that was on the outside looking in, you know, a solid, all-round, brilliant bike rider into a true alien and a, a true rider's rider and a guy that pushed Marquez, the rider of this generation, you know, harder than anyone had come before it in a straight fight. Um this year proved that last year wasn't a fluke. And, you know, he's, he's plus 45 on Jorge Lorenzo, who basically become like this year's hot shit after, after you know, the resurgence of his form. And, yeah, this what this is by all accounts a Marquez circuit, a circuit that he's gone very well around. I think Campo Inazawa won five of the last six in here an hour ago in all competitions. And it's not a dodgy um, track either. It's not a Dovi track by any stretch. He's never really gone all that well around it, and he's finished 0. 0.6 off the win. I mean, it was and probably, it's taken last year here that his championship hopes really started to tank because he was the eighth year last year. Yeah, he struggled here last year, and again, this this was a second. Um, and again, he, he challenged for the win. He tried to use his tactics on Marquez. He just didn't have the sheer pace to to beat Marquez in a straight fight this time, but. Again, he took away a solid 20 points and pushed Marquez as far as he possibly could to challenge for that victory. You can't ask for much more than that on a track where a guy's got a corner named after him. Um, so, yeah, you can't really ask for much more than that. And like I said, like Dovi, Dovi rode as, as, as intelligent and as smart a race as he possibly could. He did very well indeed. He will take a very solid 20 points away another solid podium for the team I, I don't think Ducati will be too disappointed by that given the context of the situation um yeah like Dovi is the clear number two man in this championship now there's no then given that again we have one of the best riders we've ever seen he's the, he's the only man on the planet who's better than him at the moment I don't think there's too much shame you can take away from that. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he is riding as well as we've ever seen. And that Ducati is doing a brilliant job of becoming the all-round bike in the field, which it really wasn't even a year ago. A year ago, it still had crippling weaknesses here. Ducati has done a sensational job of turning the, G the Desmond Desi GP into the all-round bike of this era, something I think Yamaha would kill for right now. And clear best bike in the field. Oh, it is the clear best bike in the field now. I mean, Ducati will be saying to themselves behind closed doors, you know, when you when you take the positives from the weekend, and of course they would have wanted to win last weekend, but Ducati will be saying, if we can take Mark Marquez to the limit at Aragon, then you know, we clearly have a strong bike that's going to beat him at most tracks um, if we mm -hmm. get it right. Um, Cam says in the chat, Mark is carrying that Honda and Yamaha is garbage trash, but we'll discuss the aforementioned garbage trash um, very, very shortly. Um, but but yeah, Davizioso, he, he's underlined now just how strong he is. In fact, the fact that Lorenzo hit that purple patch mid-season with the win at Mugello, um, following that up with the win in Barcelona, looked like he was... We all thought, well, the old Jorge's back again, and now Davizioso is going to sit into the supporting role again. But Davizioso has seen that improvement and then gone again. 
um, and wrestle yeah. back the the control within that team. Um, and you know, since the summer break, when you discount the cancelled race, obviously at Silverstone, Davizioso has gone first, third, first, second um, yeah. since then, which is a tremendous run of results. Um, Outstanding. You know, obviously, we've seen Lorenzo taking you know, a second and a first, but then two crashes to follow that. Um, and Dovizioso, ultimately, he'll, he'll want to go one better than this next season, but the history books will tell you in 10 years' time that, Loren- that Dovizioso was, assuming this season compl- concludes the way we think it is, that Dovizioso will have been championship runner-up to Mark Marquez in consecutive seasons, uh, which would have been, um, no matter how the different circumstances behind both years, that's still a great uh, couple of years that Dovizioso has put together. Mm. Um, and and as, as we've said, looking at how Ducati have improved and come on this season... He will surely be thinking to himself, I have got a real shot. With Lorenzo now joining Marquez's team rather than his own, Dovizioso has got a feel he has a real chance um, of, of winning the title in 2019. He's probably going to start the season with the strongest bike in the field. And his his biggest irritation, if you like, is going to be joining Mark Marquez to be his problem um, next year. And yeah. as we've seen last weekend, they don't particularly get on all that great. Um, even though Mark Marquez did send Lorenzo a tweet to say get well soon, um, and they they kind of apparently, apparently, yeah. apparently um, he called apparently he called him when he came out of hospital just just to check on his condition and to basically say sorry basically yeah even if there's not much Marquez was even at fault for in the exactly. first place Marcus, uh, if you feel it's, it's one of those classic ones where you fall out with your friend or something and even though you don't feel you're sorry you feel oh I'll do the right thing and I'll apologise to them um, it was one of those uh, from Mark. Um, Outside of the top two, it was actually more riders involved in the leading group, although these two guys kind of were on the peripheral of it, even though there was the mm. one, that one classic moment coming onto the back straight where, in much in the same way that he did up against Marquez and Rossi at Phillip Island that one year in 2015, where the two race leaders are battling, and then all of a sudden, here comes Andrea Iannone, uh, slicing Uh-oh. through the middle of the pair of them to take the lead <laughs> um, for all of 10 metres before that Suzuki was completely outgunned down the back straight. Um, now... It's a bit of a bittersweet one for Suzuki because there are negatives that come with the overwhelming positives of this result. But let's start with the positives, Dre. Third and fourth for the Suzuki team around Motorland Aragon, which wouldn't necessarily strike you immediately as a circuit that they would necessarily excel at. Um, But they didn't exactly qualify sensationally. I mean, Rins had to come from, what, 10th on the grid um, Mm -hmm. to finish where he did. Um, But they were quite clearly, last weekend the third best package out there yeah and you, you can't you can't blame them for lorenzo falling off the bike at the opening corner it can only beat who they put in front of you at the end of the day and yeah just like this is the thing suzuki's gone well around here before maverick vinales remember led this race for suzuki a couple of years ago so mm. like don't get it twisted suzuki have had their moments around here. they like it around here in aragon for some reason but uh no, this was a great weekend for Suzuki. I mean, third and fourth is, you know, clearly their best team result since uh, since this new lineup of them clearing the decks, having and even having Ian Oni and Rins there with the setup. Um, and again, as and again, like a, a, an excellent performance all around. It's this is the Ian Oni we were all hoping to see when he joined Suzuki in the first place. And I, I know I that think it's, it's the kind of role he excels in, where he's, he's that he, that mad underdog in the leading group. Um, no, almost has zero pressure on him, and I suppose given that he's out of the team in this season, there was no pressure on him. He's got nothing to lose. His seat's confirmed for next year. He says he's not obligated to uh, to make Suzuki go all that well. Um, but there he is, leading the charge in third place. And as we saw that brilliant moment with five laps to go, where 
where, you know, Dovi tries to go around the outside of Marquez on, on, the, on the chicane's apex. Marquez refuses to budge. They they get they split up on the middle of the chicane, and Ian only comes through the middle to take the lead very briefly. Um, Dovi gets the better drive on, on the outside, going down the back straight. Marquez is, overtakes Ian only on the draft, heading towards the final two corners. It's brilliant racing. It was, it was, it was the highlight of the race, and... And um, like MotoGP social media has shared it about 14 times already because it really was one of the highlights of the year so far. Um, and you, just look at it like this way. Three of the best riders in the world on three different manufacturers all battling for the same yard of road at the same time with five laps to go in a Grand Prix. That is what every motorsport series should aspire to have. And so props to Ian Oni for getting involved not being afraid to, to stick his nose in where it's not needed. <laughs> the and only way, of course. But uh, yeah, br- you know, brilliant rides from him and, and Alex Rins there to finish third and fourth. That was a all-round excellent day at the office for Suzuki. At a cost. At a cost, yeah. Well, it's their best team result since Mategi 2016, um, where their riders at the time were Vinales and Espargaro, who were third and fourth um, in, in that race. Um they, of course, had that run at the start of the year where they had the three consecutive podiums across Rins in Argentina and then Iannone in the two races that followed that. Um, and then safe for Rins' sensational second at Assen. Um, they haven't really troubled the podium since. Um, but, yeah, it, it does come at a cost for next year. It's kind of ironic, in a sense, that the rider that's leaving them has dealt this blow to them. Suzuki won't <laughs> have concessions for next year. Um, and Indeed. that's... That can be viewed two ways, I suppose, can't it? Much like anything, I suppose. But they, they, they are now in a position for next year where they're not going to have unlimited testing. They're not going to be able to uh, develop their engine throughout the year. They're going to be homologated at the start of the season and must go from there, um, which mm-hmm. caused them a real problem last year, as we know, where they yeah. they got their, their engine completely wrong for the start of the season in Qatar, which they then had to homologate because it was their engine that they were built for the start of the season. And because it was homologated, they couldn't really develop and better it until the season had finished. Um, yeah. Now, that may present Suzuki the problem. It adds pressure for them for next season to get next season's bike right, Dre. Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose if Suzuki is serious about this and really want to become the genuine fourth contender at the front, if you consider Yamaha a front-running contender at the moment, um, then they suppose I should be viewing it this way, that you know, this is a this is a sign of progress, and we need to make sure that we're so strong and so competitive, and that we continue this rate of progress that we never need concessions again. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that sense, where concessions are obviously designed to help the smaller factory teams out, and you know, try and create as level a playing field as you can. But at the same time, you you want to take those training wheels off at some point. And as you said, Suzuki got this badly wrong two years ago. Um, where they had concessions, they had a really poor engine out of the box, and they they just they and they were they were locked into it. They had, they had to try and aerodynamically they, they lost their concessions when Maverick Vinales won at Silverstone. Whoops! Um, <laughs> and then in 2017, uh, when Maverick of course had departed the team for Yamaha, and their their team lineup basically is as it is now. You know, Ian Rins, they 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 clearly got it badly wrong, uh, and didn't have a podium all of last season. And, and as you say, they're in that sort of um, that no man's land now where in your heart of hearts you don't really think that Suzuki are going to be in a position next year to challenge Ducati and Honda regularly um, to right. win races. They may well do what they did this year and have the occasional great result where they, they challenge up the front. Um, 
And if they continue to do that and they have the occasional dry weather podium next year, they're not going to get the concessions back because they're competitive enough to not need them. Um, right. But as I say, it just adds the pressure now on their bike for next year. And it adds the pressure, I suppose, on Alex Rins to be the leader of the team because with the best will in the yeah. world, we can't expect Joan Mir, um, as good as he is, to be you know, matching Rins and beating him consistently right out of the box next year. So it was an important result for Rins, really, wasn't it? Because he... It's it's strange this year because he has blown hot and cold. When he's been great, he's been very good. Um, you know, he's had a second in in acid, of course. He had the third in Argentina, fourth at Mugello, and uh, sorry, yeah, fourth in the last two races, fourth at Misano, and then fourth again um, at Aragon. Um, but in and amongst that, it was you know it was fourth at Mugello. But in and amongst that, Rins has had one, two, three, four, five retirements. Um, and you can't yeah. really say that those retirements are down to anyone other than Alex Rins. So it's important for next year that he really discovers that sort of consistency, and we see the Rins of of Aragon and of Assen on a consistent basis. Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, this was an important result for Rins because this is the level he's going to have, have to operate at on every single race weekend next year. Yeah, you made the exact point I was about to make, that Alex Rins now as team leader has now got a very important going forward and that's making sure that Suzuki's got an excellent package out of the box next season because he'll be in year three in MotoGP next year indeed and he's he's been sloppy at times this season as you say he's had a lot of silly DNFs that he should have avoided um going into this year and now he's going to be team leader he's going to have the pressure of Joanne Mir behind him who to be fair, it's kind of fizzled out a little bit in Moto2 in the second half of the season but it's still a very exciting talent um, you know, um, going forward, but it's it's going to be a lot of pressure on Rins to take, and he's now got to now he's got to try and make sure he's got a good car, a oh, car bike underneath him, I should say, going forward. So there's a lot of pressure on him. They've got to get a good Suzuki out because that's the nature of concessions now. And yeah, it's just it's it, it's a lot for a 22 year old to handle giving it will be again it's year three for him coming up and that's when people are going to start being a bit more judgmental about his performances he's been excellent at times this year but he's also thrown away a lot of good positions as well this year that's not that's not what Suzuki are going to want next year they're going to want him to lead this team going forward and it is an incredibly talented young team so they need a mature head going forward and we'll soon see if friends is that guy mm, we shall see um Two Honda riders who perhaps will leave the weekend feeling they should have achieved or could have achieved more last weekend. Cal Crutchlow, one of them, um, who crashed out of the Grand Prix. Circumstances both beyond and in his control that went against him um, in the end. Of course, he crashed at the end of Q2, which put him back on the grid. He was then, unfortunately for him, the rider directly behind the uh, high-siding Jorge Lorenzo at Turn 1, which caused him to lose ground, um, not through his making. Um, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time in that one. But then he crashed again shortly after that and was out of the Grand Prix. So no points for Cal um, shortly after, of course, taking that podium with Mizano. He was unable to build on that. Um, that is Cal Crutchlow's uh, fourth non-score of the season. Third retirement. He did remount after crashing in Texas to finish 19th, but that was another crash. So it's his fourth in a race this year. Petroza, um, who, of course, is uh, the second factory Repsol Honda rider at the moment for the remainder of this season before Jorge Lorenzo replaces him. Uh, he finished um, in what, in the context of his season, is a pretty solid fifth place. In fact, um, looking back, it matches his best result of the year. Um, wow. But 
I know, I surprised myself reading that. He hasn't had a podium yet all year. And I kind of want him to get one um, before he goes um, at the end of the season, just to give the general MotoGP public at large the chance to applaud him on a podium one more time um, before he goes. I think he deserves that. Um, It would be nice. Um, He finished fifth, just ahead of one of the riders of the race. And just to show how good a day it was for Andrea Iannone, uh, he finished third, gets his first podium um, since uh, Jerez back in uh, May. Um, he takes the team he's leaving uh, or deprives them of their concessions and the bike that he's going to jump on next year, Dre, finishes sixth although that's more down to the brilliance of Alicia Spargo than the brilliance of Aprilia Yeah, Alicia Spargo once again doing the Lord's work like that doesn't deserve to be anywhere near that high up <laughs> Alicia Spargo, the concession king um, but uh, yes uh, another excellent excellent performance from Alicia Spargo pretty it seems to really go well around here um, has done it in the same year yeah sixth last year as well I remember a couple of years ago when their team was Bautista and Bradle and they were in the top 10 there as well um, so yeah the pretty tends to go well around Aragon they seem to like it here um, and Alicia Spagaro, we all know he's a, he's an excellent rider. He really is. He's done nothing but good things. A lot often the time with, with poor machinery in the context of the field. And this is another prime example of that, where if Alicia's on it and the bike doesn't explode in a heaping mess, um, he he will get a good result out of it. And this was another shining example of that. An excellent performance of Alicia Spagaro there. Um, it makes you wonder about Scott Redding's temperament as a rider, where he's going out calling the thing a piece of shit and blowing his gasket over it left, right, and center when Alicia... Finished 16th last weekend. Yeah, 16th. And Alicia, who just keeps his head screwed on, bats for his teammates, and is a, is a consummate professional, goes out there and puts it sixth. Kind of says a lot, really, doesn't it? Mm. Just yeah, it is. And it's it's funny because um, when I look at Redding and uh, Aspargo's results, Redding's had five points finishes this season. Aspargo's only had six. So he's only had one more yeah. points finish. But Redding hasn't been in the top... Uh, 11 at all this season. His best result is a 12th, whereas Spargro has had a 10th, a 9th, um, and now a 6th. So, you know, Spargro on any given weekend, no matter how good the Aprilia is, Spargro is at least a level above Scott Redding, unfortunately, for Scott. Absolutely. Um, at the moment. Um, and it, it, it's a good feeling for that team who has had its fair share of criticism, rightly so, you, you have to say, um, over the course of this season. And they are quietly... Uh, due to that result, closing in on KTM um, in the Manufacturers Championship as they battle for 5th and 6th. KTM, um, who only had one bike out in the race on Sunday because Paul Espargaro was injured again. Um, Bradley Smith finished 13th, um, so he scored 3 points. So it was a 7-point game for Aprilia, and they are now, with 5 races to go, 5 points behind KTM uh, in that battle for 5th. So there is a, still a squeak of a chance that Aprilia might well claw themselves off the bottom of the Manufacturers table before mm. the season is out. Um now, we have, in true bike like fashion, gone a little longer than we expected to on this MotoGP segment, but don't worry yeah. uh, if, you want to, if you want to hear us um, dissect Movistar Yamaha's weekend. They are not absolved of any criticism here. We're still going to talk about them. Um, but it, it's amazing, Dre, in that we've discussed a pretty already in Alexis Spargo before we get to Yamaha, which tells us only one thing, in that the Yamaha, in t- if you ordered the bikes in the order that they finished the race on Sunday, Yamaha was the fifth bike out of six. Only KTM were behind them. They were beaten to the flag by Hondas, Ducatis, Suzukis, and an Aprilia um, in the end of the Grand Prix. And it's amazing. When I think of this team that struggled at the start of the season, you tend to think when a, when a 
historically strong team starts the season badly, you think, oh, well, they'll progress as the season goes on. Mm-hmm. But Movistar Yamaha and Aragon didn't have a single bike automatically through to Q2 after final practice on Saturday morning. They were all in Q1. Only Maverick Vinales made it out of Q1 into Q2. And even when he did that, he still only qualified 11th. Um, so he didn't get much further than that. Valentino Rossi qualified 18th, ladies and gentlemen. 18th. His worst MotoGP qualifying position, I believe, since Assen 2006, when he had a broken he was hand. Yeah, yeah, the broken hand. Um, because we're not including the race at Valencia where he famously started at the back because that wasn't a qualifying position, that was a penalty. Um, mm-hmm. But this is a team that, as I say, it's a, it's a historically big team. As Cam says in the chat, two years ago had undisputedly the best all-round bike in the field. Yet no they doubt. started this season with a, with a poor package and rather than closing the gap and progressing towards the front, they're regressing. They're getting worse. Like... It's it's crazy. Like much had already been made of their problems as a as a, as a manufacturer um, in this season. Like we all know, they've struggled. I mean, no no one needs to be a genius to work that one out. But the press talk going into the weekend was like, no guys, it re- it might be worse than we thought, basically. And yeah, that fear turned out to be justified. Rossi had to ride out of his skin to get it into the top eight, and. Maverick went from, you know, basically 14th down to 19th off the opening lap. He brought it back to barely crack the top 10. But no matter which way you slice it, everybody else was better. And and it's 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 terrifying. Like, there is now no major element of bike racing where Yamaha is the best bike anymore. They are being outclassed by Ducati and Honda in every other department. They have now gone 23 races since their last victory, and that was Valentino Rossi at Assen last season. That is their longest run without a win ever as a manufacturer in the top flight. And that's when they first joined. I think it was 1973 was their first year in the 500 class. And there's no They've sign not... of an imminent end to that run either. No, exactly. This, this, is, this is going to be for a while yet, folks, by the looks of it, because there's no obvious... Yeah, like there's no obvious sign of Yamaha winning a race anytime soon. It's probably going to take either a wet race, some spectacular shenanigans, or a fundamentally massive improvement from Yamaha to improve it. It's a bad sign when Valentino himself comes out and says, the last time we had a major update for this bike was two years ago. And this very same Grand Prix two years ago at Aragon 2016 was the last time he felt the bike had set a significant upgrade on it. Something is fundamentally wrong with this team right now. Like we all, we've all seen the story about Maverick and his, and you know, falling out of Ramon Ficada and his crew chief and and his drama with the team and you know Rossi often getting the best results out of a bike that was struggling. Like if Rossi's absolute best is only good enough for seventh. There is a fundamental problem with this team that needs to be solved. Something yeah, Rossi, is wrong. Rossi was eighth last weekend. He was 15 seconds um, behind the race winner, Mark Marquez, which I think is kind of a miraculous piece of riding for him to even bring it that close, um, right. given where he started. Um, and and to be fair, he qualified 18th, got bumped up a spot for reasons we'll tell you in a moment. Um, but that's about where he'd been in free practice. He was 18th after combined practice. Um, on Saturday yeah. morning, so that's not like it was a full script position. That's literally where he was um, on our right pace. Although there was a slightly curious end to qualifying one, where 
Valentino Rossi, and I still haven't had this explained um, because it's not really referenced in the pre in the press release after qualifying, other than there was some confusion. But Valentino Rossi goes out of the pits with two and a half minutes to go for his outlap in Q1 for the final run. Doesn't doesn't make the checkered flag before starting his fast lap, and I still don't know. I still haven't had it explained why that happened. Um, whether it was just some sort of despondence, whether it was a you know Valentino Rossi making a point, or whether he just got muddled up and didn't realise how far away he was because. To go out for your final time lap with two and a half minutes to go on a lap that's a minute 50 and you miss the chequered flag by a good 20 seconds. What on earth was Valentino doing on his out lap um, to not make was the chequered flag? Well, I think he was, but how does he get, how does he, how does he, how does he do an out lap that takes three minutes um, to get round? Um, and and I don't know, I don't know whether he would have gone any further up than he was already anyway, but even so, he was a mile back. Um, and yeah, Maverick Vinales even though he can quite legitimately hide behind how bad his bike is and say, look, it's the bike's fault, he was still seven and a half seconds behind his teammate who started a row behind him. Um, and not that, good enough. No matter, how, no matter how bad your bike is, that is not good enough uh, for Marvin Vinales. No. And just to top off how bad his weekend was, Dre, we have to talk about the end to Q1 for Maverick uh, and his mm-hmm. side of the Yamaha garage because um, Bradley Smith is... Riding his riding his nuts off, trying to drag the KTM into Q1, and looked like he had an outside chance of making it, um, yeah. because he was he was he was hundreds off uh, the time required to get him into Q2, until he approaches the final corner and finds Maverick Vinales and Franco Morbidelli. It has to be said, essentially dawdling on the racing line at the end of a 200 mile an hour straight. What the hell was he doing? I do not understand that. Surely he had to have known that people were still going to be doing hot laps. So of the one place you don't want to dawdle, it's right before the apex of a corner you're entering at 210 miles an hour on the brakes. I still remember Nicky Hayden going straight on at that corner and flying over the fence. Oh, that's a terrifying crash. Um, That's the corner he was doing it on. I mean... It's not so much. It's not just the fact that he was dawdling, but to do it right on the racing line at the end of the back straight. I mean, get out of the way, Maverick. <laughs> I've, you, I, I don't understand what Maverick was thinking. There, he wasn't thinking. There's probably the, the the best answer for that one. He clearly was not thinking straight. If he felt like that was the best way of going about his business, that is completely unacceptable. Um, I'm from, from a guy that was complaining. Okay. So Coter, I find that kind of ironic that he's done that to Bradley Smith out there, having no idea or awareness of other riders on the track, knowing Bradley was coming in at 208 miles an hour, um, under braking for that final corner, which is so dangerous. Um, again, him and Frankie Morbidelli, like Bradley said, that Morbidelli put, put him out past the curb. It was that. It was that bad. So don't get me wrong. Maverick wasn't the worst defender here because he again Maverick three grid slots as a penalty. Um, Frankie got six which kind of says it all um, for blocking and um, dawdling on the racing line. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's brainless from Maverick. Um, I, I, I do not understand why he was doing that. It's just, it's just it, you can't be ruining people's qualifying sessions like that. And, and you know, he should know better than to do something like that. Simple as that. Yeah, it, 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 it was dreadful. And as Dre's articulated, there was a three-place group penalty for Maverick Vinales, six for Franco Morbidelli, who... Um, the the explanation essentially was given that because at least Maverick Vinales was looking around and sort of made at least an attempt to get to the inside of the corner, um, there was a gentler penalty 
uh, for Maverick, and Franco Bobadelli got given six. Xavier Simeon was also the inside, but he was a little further out of the way, and as a result, um, got no penalty. Um, for those that are listening in live, um, on Discord at the moment, there is actually an image that is appearing on the Discord chat now where you can see where Bradley Smith is on the racetrack on a hot lap at the end of the back straight. No, which is, no, which is, which is no. ridiculous. Um, and the other, the other three are going at half speed at best. Um, you know, how, how exactly can a rider get away with that? Um, so yeah, Maverick Vinal has got a penalty as it is um, and had to start from, well, he got dropped from 11th to 14th and then dropped even further by the time the race started. Uh, the race finished in the end. It ended like this. Mark Marquez, the winner, from Davizioso and Yenone. Uh, with Alex Rins in fourth. Just two and a half seconds covered that top four uh, in the end. Danny Pedrosa a couple of seconds further back in fifth, ahead of Alessio Spargro. Daniela Petrucci, who had a bit of a quiet race to seventh. Valentino Rossi, eighth. Jack Miller, ninth. Um, and Maverick Vinales, tenth. Funny story for those that didn't see it on uh, Friday morning of Maverick Vinales stalling his bike. Um, as if his weekend didn't even start well, he yes. stalled it on the practice starts, and Jack Miller had to push him back. Um, and, and it was, and it was one of the hilarious videos of the season where Maverick Vinales' onboard camera is showing on the uh, world feed, and Jack Miller, noticing this on the big screens, decides he's going to wave over Maverick's shoulder at the camera. Hi, uh, hi, guys. <laughs> which is which is very very funny, uh, very very Jack Miller. Um, so Maverick was tenth ahead of Franco Bobadelli, who recovered from his own grid penalty to finish eleventh. Uh, ahead of Takaki Nakagami, twelfth. Bradley Smith, thirteenth. Uh, Joan Zarka only fourteenth. Um, just to emphasize wow. how bad the Yamahas were last weekend. Uh, wow. 30, Thirty-two seconds behind the winner started where he finished in fourteenth. Uh, and Carol Abraham That's takes bad. the final point in fifteenth position. Uh, championship standings then. Uh, and we are now heading into those Asia-Pacific flyaways, starting in Thailand in, in uh, a week's time. Um, so we're heading into the closing stretch now. Mark Marquez leads Andrea Davizioso by 72 points, uh, with Davizioso 15 clear of Rossi in third. Um, Jorge Lorenzo is now 29 points behind Rossi in third. So uh, Valentino Rossi and Yamaha might somehow shithouse their way to a top three championship finish by the, the way it's going. Uh, with Lorenzo so far back. Um, Lorenzo is now level on points with Mario Vinales, who drew level with him after his result of the weekend. Cal Crutchlow also non-scored, and he's now level with Daniel Petrucci in 6th and 7th. Zarco is now 8th on 112 points. Uh, Dre gave us a stat on this, by the way, before we started, that uh, Joan Zarco scored as many points in the first four races as he has since then. Um, which, again, shows the decline yeah. of Yamaha as the season's gone on. Uh, Andrea Inoni is now just four points behind the Frenchman himself in ninth on 108. And Alex Rins completes the top 10 on 92 points, just ahead of Danny Pedrosa. into Moto3 next and the reason we're going to do Moto3 now as opposed to Moto2 is because uh, we're kind of following on from the theme of uh, our last discussion and that is um, rather boneheaded riding in qualifying um, because the Moto3 qualifying sessions have become characterized by riders trying to find slipstreams it's pretty much um, the way these sessions go at the end of it where we see the entire field as one come into the pits with about 10 minutes to go qualifying and then they'll all venture out with around 3 or 4 minutes to go and they'll all go out together to try and slipstream off each other and tow themselves up the grid. Um, now, grid penalties have been handed out, Drake, 
um, quite quite often, quite recently, to try and deter riders from doing this again. It's clearly not working because, um, in the end, on the 29 rider field last weekend, only two, and those are the riders who were qualified first and second, actually started the race where they qualified because everyone else got jumbled either up or downwards because of grid penalties. This has got to change, and it's clear that penalties aren't going to change yet, so what's going to? <sighs> I don't know. You know what you terrible. said on their Twitter at the weekend? Change of format's needed. Yeah, you've got to change the format. This doesn't work. Now, don't get me wrong. I know a lot of this is exaggerated due to the fact that this is an Aragon-specific super problem. It's a problem on most tracks. It's an even bigger problem at Aragon because, as I mentioned, in these Moto3 bucks that only have about 60 horsepower, a, a toe on the back straight is worth half a second. So you'd rather take the gamble and risk it going for a glue, you know, looking for a toe and looking for that extra half second that might be worth two or three rows on the grid by the time it by the time the grid shakes itself out. I mean, classic example. Like, you know, um, Marco Bezecchi sets a brilliant lap for, from, you know, and puts himself on pole position on his own with no slipstream. He ends up finishing 0.7 off Jorge Martin's time. He was able to get a toe on the back straight and was otherwise stupidly quick. And it costs him two rows. And clearly a 12th place grid penalty, which is now like the new baseline for dawdling on the race, dawdling on the racing line, is not enough. Because, like, for the riders that are out there on track, it's clearly not worth the. It's clearly worth the risk. Riders were given grid penalties. Thirteen of them. I'll give you them all uh, without sounding like Big Brother announcing who's up for eviction at the end of the week. In alphabetical order, mm-hmm. they are uh, Jeremy Alcoba, Nicolo Antonelli, Tony Arbolino, Enea Bastianini, Marco Bezzecchi, Nicolo Bulliger, Lorenzo Della Porta, Raul Fernandez, Dennis Foggia. Jakub Kofile, Kazuki Masaki, Andrea Migno, and Gabby Rodrigo, they were all given grid penalties uh, on Sunday morning, which varied from three grid places, six grid places, or in the case of Dennis Fodjic, he'd done it a few times, he was sent to the pit lane um, for the start of the race, yeah. and he'd qualified fifth. Um, so if that wow. doesn't draw the message in, what will? <laughs> There's... <laughs> Oh, didn't race direction at the start of the season tell the Moto3 grid, we are willing to go as far as, like, race bands if this keeps up, basically? case, that's surely what's next. <laughs> yeah, like, this, is, this was their way of throwing the book to say, you know what, we have had enough of this shit. We will start putting people in the pit lane and putting them, like, on the back of the grid if this continues. It still hasn't done enough. In my opinion, you've got to change the format. Instead of having a 40-minute session, have two, maybe 15-minute sessions or two 20-minute sessions, Dorna would find a way to schedule it around and, and, and figure out the logistics of it. But split the field in half, have two separate sessions, give the riders that are on track more space and therefore a much smaller chance of them needing to toe off another rider because... Because the way it's going right now, these riders are insecure, and 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 it's going, it's it's being translated out on track. You should be able to to go fast enough on your own. The problem is that the the way the class is calibrated, toes sometimes are it's worth a lot of time. Yeah, and just to just to um, confirm on Fodgia from the official uh, notice that was sent around to the media on Sunday morning. 
Dennis Foggia um, was told that he'd been riding too slowly in three sectors of the racetrack. Um, and for the above reasons, and being the third offence, um, wow. he's been handed a pit lane start. So surely fourth offence means uh, sit at home for a race weekend and you know come back in, in, in Australia. Um, if, if he does it in Thailand, he'll be missing Mategi. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's extraordinary that the riders are still continuing to to make this error because surely the the positives of it will outweigh any potential negatives. If you can get a toe and get away with a penalty, you know, if you if you're not quite slow enough to break the rules, but you're slow enough to catch up with someone or be caught by someone who will give you a slipstream, these riders will keep doing it. Um, unfortunately, um, and that led us to what we had on, on the Sunday, where only two riders, as I mentioned, were actually given. Uh, the same grid slot that they'd actually achieved on the Saturday. And those were the men in mm-hmm. first and second. Jorge Martino we'll discuss in a moment. And Jean Messia in second. Now that nearly even changed because Jean Messia, we thought, wasn't even going to start the race at all. Um, because having taken his career best qualifying position on the Saturday, he then goes out in morning warm-up on the Sunday, crashes out and breaks his collarbone. Um, normally, Dre, that would stop a rider uh, from racing at all and they'd come back maybe in town in two weeks' time. But Jean Messier has clearly been taking inspiration from a certain Christian Eden because he went out there and raced anyway and finished ninth. How? Um, like adrenaline must be one hell of a drug, kids. He's because seventeen. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't understand bike riders, man. And like, like once I do, you you can you guys can come back to me on this one because like I. Uh, like they must be giving him like horse tranquilizers as painkillers because that must be the only way this makes sense. Um, like, like if the average person breaks their collarbone, they're in a sling for a month. Um, bike riders, ah, patch it up, put some painkillers on it. We're going to ride it pretty a couple of hours later. I, I, I do not understand bike riders, man. But uh, now Messiah still what? He fin- didn't he finish in eighth place in the end? Like in so- ninth, I think he got beaten on the final lap. He was just ahead of John McPhee at the end. But that's miraculous in itself. It's finished that high Dick. up, and he and he ran with the leading group for, I'll say the leading group, the fight for second in the end because there was a guy way up the front, um, and he kept up with them for the majority of the race. It was an extraordinary piece of, of bravery and just being able to ride through unbelievable pain from from Jean Messier and. As we've said, uh, you know, adrenaline can be the best drug, but just getting your teeth into it, just a scrap on track and something to just something to focus on rather than focus on the pain that you're in, um, exactly. is something in itself. And uh, a brilliant ride from Jean Messier, who then had it sort of, you know, looked at um, on the Monday. We don't yet know whether he's going to actually race at uh, at Thailand next week in, next weekend, but you would assume he will. Um, I mean, he can, if he can race twenty, you know, two hours after breaking his collarbone, he can race two weeks after it. Um, so so we'll see um, in two weeks time broken collarbone or not he was never going to have enough to keep up with uh, the man who started ahead of him Dre Jorge Martin taking what was his ninth pole position um, of the season if you include the one that he never really got to convert Silverstone um, when the race never happened um, which now actually uh, from what I gather at the weekend now takes him past his team boss Fausto Grassini as the all-time record holder for pole positions in the lightweight class of Grand Prix racing. Um, so congratulations to Jorge Martin for that. Um, I think it's only his sort of 19th pole position ever, but given that obviously riders don't tend to stick around in the lightweight class for long, that's why it's such a, a low record, if you like. Uh, but Martin now has it. Um, and it was, it was a, an exercise in just pure dominance, wasn't it, Dre? Because he did what he's tried to do on a few occasions this season, 
and that is just bolt from the front and try and minimise the number of riders in the group with him. This time it succeeded because there weren't any riders with him in the group at all. Yeah, I mean, David Emmett summed it up better than I could. He won the race on the on the, on the very first corner. He got, he got the perfect hole shot, um, nailed the turn one apex, had half a second in hand already. He had a second and a half lead by the time the first lap was over. And by that point, the race was won. Once, once Jorge Martin gets in clear space, it is over, ladies and gentlemen. And that is exactly here. Um, he's tried this uh, numerous times when he started from the front in the Moto3 race. He will try and go out from the front and and basically try to break them early. And this time it actually worked. Um, too much infighting in, in, you know, jostling for position at the start of the race. Martin breaks away. Yeah, the fact gets that his two likeliest rivals in Bezeki and Bastini were sent back down the grid, so we're too far back to even latch onto a toe either. Yeah, it was an open goal because Bez is very fast in open air to his credit. But uh, yeah, by that point, too late. Race was already over. And uh, yeah, simple as that, really. Um, the, the race was done by, by turn two. And yeah, Bez and Bazzi, just me being down the field, it took them time. Not, not a lot of time to get up the front. But by that point, it was too late. It was already over. Martin is just too fast out there in open air. If he's on his own, he broke the toe an hour ago. And if he gets that one second lead... He's had it, and that's exactly what he got. It was the perfect storm um, for, for Jorge Martin to win that race comfortably, and that's exactly what he did. Yeah, Bez and Baz, I love that. That, that. that would be a great double act, wouldn't it, in, uh, in Moto3. They were the other two riders on the podium with him um, in the end. Um, and it's kind of ominous in a way for this championship, isn't it, Dre? Which I still think will go down to the wire in the end, because it just seems to have been that kind of season um, in mm. Moto3. But Jorge Martin, who, of course, famously crashed out of three of the first six races um yeah uh, and to, to his credit hasn't crashed out of a race since he crashed out of the weekend in Bruno in on friday when he had that accident which injured him out of the weekend but of the last six races he has started he's been first first third sorry the last five races he started first first third second and first because britain didn't happen um after he'd qualified on pole position because of the rain on the sunday so it appears that Marco Bezzecchi, uh, his championship rival, he's no longer going to be able to just rely on that consistency to beat Martin, is he now? Because Martin seems to have shaken off those silly errors that were essentially putting him behind Bezzecchi to start with. Yeah, Bez is now going to have to earn every win he gets now, and he's going to have to stop beating. Yeah, he's going to start beating Martin, so no he's going to run out of rounds hoping for a Martin mistake. I'm not sure that's going to happen again this year. Um, Martin had a lot of circumstantial incidents happen, which cost him you know, some very high-ranking results. Um, that's not happened for a little while now. Martin get his head down and get back on with his riding again. And as said, if Martin is on it, he will win. It is as simple as that. He's the most surefire win to, to win pick I've seen in Moto3 for quite some time. He is scintillating when he's, when he's in the lead of a group. Um, Bez, he's, he's consistent, he's strong, but those two critical errors that Bez has made this year is probably going to come back to haunt him at some point because, like, they've cost him dearly and they've now they've, they've now cost him the luxury where he can keep finishing in second. He's going to have to start beating Martin on the road on a semi-frequent basis for, to, to really get up there. And, well, he's running out of rounds to do it now. He, he needs to get his head down and start figuring out ways to beat Martin. Otherwise, it's not going to happen for Bez this year. Mm. I, mean, it, I mean, just to give you a breakdown of Jorge Martin this year, um, he's only finished nine races this season, and we've had 13 of them. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's 
uh, of the nine races he's finished, one of those he had to start for the pit lane in Argentina. So, of course, he's not going to finish too high up the front in that one. Um, but of those other eight, six wins, one second, one third. Um, so, Jorge Martin, if you give him a clear run, he's going to win 75% of the time. Um, yep. Essentially. Um, and, and yeah, Bezeki's going to have to go out and beat him on the race track if he's going to win this championship, especially now that he trails him um, by 13 points. But to be fair to Bezeki, the, the deficit could have been a lot more than that because I don't care, even if it's Moto3 in a class that's easier to make up ground than it is in Moto2 or Moto GP. But I think right. at any level, to start 18th and finish second is a tremendous piece of riding. When you add in the context of Bezeki had a championship, you know, challenge to try and keep on track and the fact that he knew Martin was way out the front and was going to win the race and that he had to finish second at all costs to do that mm-hmm. from 18th on the grid in an absolute dogfight that he was in I would file that much like we were talking about Scott Dixon on Motorsport 101 you're talking about champions drives that for me was a champions ride from Bezeki even if he might not become the champion late in the season yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, as I mentioned, okay, Martin dominated the race, but even no matter how much you dominate, it's still only five points on Bess. You don't get any bonus points by winning by half a dozen seconds. Um, that's the thing we've got to consider. And yeah, Bez, um, yeah, Bez was outstanding. That was a critical race in his title fight. And as much as he didn't win um, and the race was lost on the first corner, a very important second place for Bezeki's championship. He only lost five points here. Despite Martin getting a very easy ride to his to his sick victory of the year now for Martin, um, so Bears needed to finish in second to keep the pressure on, and that's exactly what he's done. Um, as you say, by any measure, going from 18th to second is a phenomenal performance, and Bears deserves a pat on the back for that one. That's exactly what he needed to do. He did it with glowing colours on that one. So yeah, an excellent ride from 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 Bezeki on that one. Even if he didn't win it, he, he, he doesn't have to win these just yet. But by any case, like that is as good as a performance as he could, as he could have realistically asked to have, especially in the context of the situation. Yeah, because he had to walk that sort of tightrope of you know being being careful, being cautious, and not getting involved in an accident as he gets through the field. But equally, he knows he has to get through the field as soon as possible um, because. I suppose in his head, in those early laps, he's still thinking to myself, I need to get myself to the front of the group and try and stay with Martin. Um, I think he just realised by the time he got to the front of the, the, the chase group, he was four seconds back and realised that all he could do was really maintain where he was. Um, and again, to his credit, he got pummeled back right to the back of the group again by Marcos Ramirez midway through, made that move on him into the hairpin, that sort of tight, that sort of tightening left-hander turns three and four. Um, mm-hmm. The corner where we famously saw Pedroza and Rossi going side by side a number of times three years ago. Um, Marcos Ramirez goes up the inside of Bezeki, puts him on the curb. Um, Bezeki drops all the way back to ninth again, and essentially has to claw his way back through that group all over again. Um, mm-hmm. And and he did it brilliantly, kept his head and kept his championship hopes alive with twenty important points. The race finished like this. Martin the winner by five point nine seconds. Um, <sighs> it's, it's Danny Kent levels of dominance in Moto Three uh, from Bezeki in second, Bastianini in third. Um, who now, much like uh, Martin, has his own all-time record to his name. He now has the all-time record for most podium finishes in Moto3 history. Uh, Fabio Di Antonio in fourth. Uh, Marcos Ramirez uh, in fifth position, ahead of Tatsuki Suzuki sixth. Uh, Albert Arena seventh. Adam Norodin eighth. He, having qualified outside the top ten, got bumped up to fourth on the grid uh, with all the penalties <laughs> um, and took full advantage by finishing eighth. Jean Messier ninth. 
and John McPhee uh, rounding out the top 10 in 10th. Or should I say, if you're BT Sport, Britain's John McPhee. Uh, well done to him. Jakub Kornfile, 11th. Mino 12th. Dallaporta, 13th. Nicola Bulliga, 14th. And Vicente Perez um, took the final point in 15th place. Um, Dennis Foggia, who I mentioned to you already, qualified 5th. Looked like he had genuine podium pace all weekend, but because of that penalty that sent him to the pit lane, he finished 43 seconds back in 25th. Hope that has taught him a lesson. Uh, we shall see. Uh, championship standings then. Uh, heading into the final five races in Moto3, Jorge Martin uh, retains the lead, and as I mentioned, he's extended now by a further five points. He has 191, so he's 13 clear of Bezecchi. Dijan Antonio fading now, 41 back. Um, and has his own political issues to deal with, which we'll tell you in a moment. Um, and Ea Bastianini um, is fourth on 133, so he trails Bartin by 58 points. Aaron Canet, who crashed out of the race uh, at the weekend. Um, well, actually, no, he didn't crash out. He pulled out, didn't he? Because he, he was in pain from the crash he had at Mizano. Um, yeah. Decided yeah, the pain was too much, pain. so he had to pull out. Um, he's fifth mm. on 118. Gabriel Rodrigo, who did crash out because he, he got tangled up towards the end. Um, on the final couple of laps. Um, he, with Ramirez, he, he's sixth in the championship on 97. Confile seventh on 96. Dallaporta, eighth on 91. Ramirez, ninth on 78. And Mino, tenth on 71. So 13 points covers the top two in Moto3. And it looks like a two-horse race now for the lightweight class championship. Uh, in terms of Moto2, it's been a two-horse race for a long time um, between Francesco Bagnaia and Miguel Oliveira. Um, the two championship rivals, though, Dre, in this class were kind of upstaged in the end um, at Aragon because although KTM did taste victory, it was a bit of a bittersweet one for them because it wasn't the rider they necessarily bargained on winning um, that did it. Um, Miguel Oliveira had his own problems, problems that have blighted him for much of the season that he just can't qualify to save his life. Um, mm -hmm. And he will have been very, very grateful in the end that uh, whilst he was struggling to seventh, his teammate did him a solid by beating Banyaya to the victory. Oh, hail Lord Binder, our Lord and Saviour, Lord Binder. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> which I think um, there'll be an extra extra large bonus in the pay packet for Binder's victory by basically taking five points off Banyaya. Um, not the KTM they would have been hoping for, I think, but hey, they all count, right? Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Binder just dominated the weekend, had a shock pole position out there, which kind of exposed Miguel Oliveira's qualifying problems to say, oh, okay, maybe it is more than just the bike then. Um, if Binder can stick it on pole and Oliveira was starting on row six, um, which kind of says it already. I mean, don't get me wrong, Moto 2, I mean, I mean, he was only pointing on off the top, but in Moto 2 terms, 0.9 is a vast gaping chasm. Um, and in the race itself, yeah, Binder held off the the, uh, the the charge of Alex Marquez in there. Marquez had a, had a stronger ride he's had previously. Banyaya was in the mix. Lorenzo Baldessari was in the mix as well. But Binder withstood the pressure and then ended up winning fairly comfortably in the grand scheme of things by the end of that race. Um, an excellent ride from Brad Binder. Rode that like a true consummate pro. Um, and yeah, did what he had to do. And again, he's he's, he's kind of done Oliveira a favour there in the title race, although Oliveira didn't really help himself this weekend yeah. either. But uh, an excellent ride from Binder. And uh, nice to see that, again, that Germany wasn't just a fluke and he's got a couple of wins in him for the year. It's very nice to see. Yeah, it is because you know Oliveira basically knowing that he was going to score relatively few points, he needed uh, Binder to 
reduce Banyaya's points return. It, and, and Dre won't like the comparison, but I referenced it before we started. I referenced it uh, to Formula 1 at Monza, where um, Sebastian Vettel in the Oliveira role was having a poor race, uh, or poor points return, and needed his teammate to reduce the points return of his other title rival, which Kimi Raikkonen didn't. Uh, on that occasion. It, it um, pains me, but he's not wrong. <laughs> and uh, essentially did what Raikkonen should have done at Monza um, and took the points off Banyaya and ensured that he only took 20 um, from the race weekend. Um, and, and just to emphasize what Dre said about how it wasn't like it was, you know, a difference in setup or a difference in conditions or anything. They did their lap times, their fastest lap times in qualifying at the same time. Um, Binder was 10th. Um, and leapt up to pole. Oliveira went from 18th to 14th, but then um, got popped for track limits and got sent back to 18th again. So even if Oliveira hadn't exceeded track limits, he would have still only started 14th on the grid, um, which wouldn't have really given him much more of a leg up than he had already. Um, and yeah, to, to back up the point you're making on Binder's pole and his conversion into a victory, I wouldn't say the pole was necessarily out of nowhere or a fluke, but he was 10th before he set it. So it wasn't like he'd been threatening that all through the session. It kind of came from nowhere in that respect, where it was like, oh, Binder's on pole. Like, where's he pulled that one from? Um, like, oh, and, and, he, and he suddenly leapt ahead of Jorge Navarro. So it was Marcel Schrotter at the time who was on pole, and Navarro who joined them all in the front row. Um, so Marcel Schrotter, bless him, still waiting for his maiden pole. Um, still can't get it. <laughs> Binder denied him this time. Um so I was kind of thinking to myself, with Binder taking pole in that fashion, does he genuinely have the pace to to stick up there in the race, or was that just one you know balls to the wall lap that put him up there? Um, in the mm-hmm. end, he he did measure it because he didn't exactly lead for the front all the way through. He was relegated behind Alex Marquez early on, who started the race well, um, but it was just well measured from Binder. He didn't you know he didn't panic, he didn't rush it. Just took his time in picking off Alex Marquez, and once he once he went, he, he was obviously he knew he had the pace all along. Once he took the lead from Marquez, he just calmly, coolly, just eased away um, to win by a reasonably comfortable margin of just over a second in the end. Which in Moto Two terms is actually quite a decent advantage, given that a second can cover the top twenty on the grid at most race weekends. Just ask Miguel. Um, so Binder takes the victory and. I, I I had him as an outside tip for the title this year. I, I certainly would say he's got to be expected to be among the favourites next year. Um, right. He's going to have that KTM behind him, and he's now, you know, he's had this extra year in the class. He's now a race winner. Now is the chance for him to now kick on again and become a regular winner next year. Uh, given that, with all the, the best will in the world to Jorge Martin, as good as he is, we've seen how difficult it is for rookies moving up to Moto2 um, to come straight away. You know, we've never seen a rookie champion. Um, in the Moto2 class, so you'd expect Binder to be the you know the, the man flying the KTM flag, um, and that's not the one that's currently uh, flying in Ryan King's room uh, back in New York. Um, <laughs> uh, so Brad Binder taking the win from uh, Francesco Bagnaia, who picked off um, Alex Marquez and Lorenzo Baldassari towards the end to take that podium finish uh, in second place, and he's just doing what he has to do, Dre. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, Banyaya can't do anything about how poorly Miguel Oliveira is qualifying. And uh, it's basically Banyaya's job is to punish these poor qualifying positions and, you know, by extension, poor race results for Miguel Oliveira. And whilst he didn't take the race victory, no one clearly had an answer for Brad Binder. So Banyaya pretty much did all he could. And those are 20 important points, which in the grand scheme of things, with a 19-point lead now going to the final five races, and a rider up against him who clearly can't qualify very well, Banyaya appears to be the you know, short odds favourite, and those odds are only getting shorter. Exactly. I mean, it, it, when when your main rival is seventh, second is 
absolutely fine. Not a problem at all. You're not go- you're not going to win every single race, and that is fine. Um, in in and again, he, he, I'm, I'm sure he probably saw it on a pit board, knowing that Miguel was 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 like P six, P seven, and you know what? Maybe he felt he didn't felt like he had to go after Binder with uh, with, with maximum attack, knowing that. 20 points compared to Oliveira in seven, who was only going to be getting nine points is a, it's still a very nice return. It's still, it's, it's still plus 11 on your main title threat. That's a good day at the office. You know, you're not going to win every single race, not, not in moto two. It's impossible. Um, so he rode his race. He tried to go for it. He, he knew he wasn't going to get it. Took, took, you know, took the second place. Um, and yeah, he'll be, be leaving Aragon appeared than Miguel Oliveira. And that's the point. So, yeah, job done for Francisco, and he'll go out again and try to try to win from the front in Thailand instead. Yeah, he will. Um, apologies to all of you who get a real kick out of Moto Two, but that's pretty much all that we've got from that race weekend uh, in the intermediate class. Partly with time against us, but partly because it, although it was an intriguing race for the championship, it wasn't an all-time classic. Um, but no. don't tell that to Brad Binder because he won it uh, by a second and a half from Francesco Bagnaia with Lorenzo Baldassari. Um, in third position for another podium for him. Uh, Alex Marquez, a uh, bit of respite for him. His first points since the summer break, incredibly, um, in fourth for him. Um, ahead of Marcel Schrotter, who went from second to fifth. Uh, Juan Mia, who, as Dre mentioned, has kind of, his jets have been cooled a little bit in Moto2, but I keep trying to remind myself, this kid is still a rookie at this level. Um, yes. And that, you know, we, our expectations have understandably been heightened um, by Juan Mir, the way he started the season, the fact that he's going to MotoGP next season. But for a rookie in Moto2 to finish sixth at any level, I think he's still a good result. So sixth for him. Um, ahead of Miguel Oliveira uh, in seventh. Mattia Pacini, eighth. Uh, Fabio Quattararo, ninth on the speed up. Uh, news on his, uh, well, I should say ex teammate shortly. Uh, Jorge Navarro, uh, who's actually going to the speed up team next season. Um, finished in 10th from his first ever Moto2 front row start. The final points positions went to Luca Marini, uh, Simone Corsi, uh, Augusto Fernandez, Ika Lacuona, and Tatsuta Nagashima, uh, the Japanese who took the final point uh, in 15th position. Uh, championship standings then in Moto2. Uh, Francesco Bagnaia continues to lead it, um, but as I mentioned, he's extended his lead now to 19 points over Miguel Oliveira. Brad Binder has consolidated third in the championship now uh, with his second win of the year. He's third, uh, albeit 90 points behind Bagnaia, but 12 clear of Lorenzo Baldassari now in fourth. Uh, Alex Marquez has a further six back in fifth. He's gone back ahead now of his teammate Juan Mir in the championship. Mir drops a spot to sixth. Uh, Marcel Strotter seventh. Pataya Piscini eighth. Fabio Quattararo ninth. And Xavi Fierke completes the top 10 uh, on 96 points, although he crashed out on last weekend's Grand Prix of Aragon. Next round of the championship in all three classes is the inaugural Thai Grand Prix, which takes place at Buriram uh, in a week's time. And uh, if you've watched any of the World Superbike races there, it should be a cracking weekend of racing. That is a tremendous bike track.
Right, onto the news. Um, and we're going to stick with Moto2, actually. Um, the class which we just covered in our Aragon Roundup, because there's been uh, two key pieces of Moto2 news to break. Um, well, three, if you include the fact that they all went testing at Aragon on the Monday after the race with the Triumph engines. Um, that ain't news. Uh, that ain't news, because they've been testing those for a while now. Um, the only news is that they sound terrific. Um, yes. Danny Kent might not get a chance to sample that, though. He certainly won't be sampling the last five races of this season um, as Honda bid farewell to the Moto2 class because he's been kicked out of the speed-up team. Um, Yikes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one, this, Drake, because it, it, you kind of think to yourself, well, in football, if a manager does a bad job, he gets the sack. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Danny Kent with the best will of the world, hasn't done a good job for speed up this season because Fabio Quartararo has been almost been in a different category to him um, for yeah. all of this season. Um, but as, as Simon Patterson of MCN did say this week, Danny Kent's uh, dismissal, if you like, or his loss of uh, his spot with the speed up team for the final five races of this season does shine a light on how uh, watertight, or should I say how watertight Moto2 contracts or Grand Prix contracts in general are not because uh, Danny Kent was under contract to ride for speed up for the rest of this season and yet in Thailand next weekend it looks like Ed Capon's going to be on his bike yeah I mean this is a tricky one because you're right on paper absolutely um, Danny Kent's results have been poor he's not gotten the best out of the speed up package he's been shown up by Fabio Quattararo objectively I think any guy will tell you that I think even Danny itself would tell you that he, he, he's played second fiddle like he like he openly admitted to Simon Patterson that he'd lost confidence he'd lost confidence on the on the front of the bike because he doesn't suit the front end it doesn't suit his riding style and that's caused him to crash by overdoing it and when you he crash all the time points he is 23rd in the championship just for context <sighs> that is the same total points that Stefano Manzi and Tetsuta Nagashima currently have yeah it's not good enough it's it's just isn't good enough for a we have a factory team that is expecting big things, and it's it's not a good look. And yeah, at that point, like I can understand why Speed Up have pulled the plug. I mean, with five races to go, if you can get anything out of that team package now, now is a good time. Um, but on the other side of the coin, sacking a guy with five races to go seems a bit redundant to me because Edgar Pons is going to be coming in cold and I'm not sure how much better he is going to be on that bike, um, to say the least. Um, and no one likes working on probation. And again, it's a, it goes to show you that a MotoGP contract is basically written on tissue paper because, like, if you can cut, I mean, it was a two-year agreement when he signed with Speed Up. He was cut, not even through the first year. So, how, like, how many termination clauses does a Moto Two contract have then in that case? Because that's that's quite scary, and I don't mean that in no good way. Um, yeah, it's it's sad. It is sad for me because like I do feel a level of empathy for Danny Kent because no one like it sucks as well because it's going to be hard for him to get another job for next season now because a lot of these seats are already set in stone. Like, mm. silly seasons are decided in May, not he September. Thought he thought he had a seat. And he, and he clearly thought he had one. Even if, even if they cut season, he thought he still might have had a chance to get a seat elsewhere. But now he's been put in a very awkward situation now where half of Moto2 have already got seats confirmed for next year. It's going to be very hard for him to get a job for 2019 now. Um, and go he's got no, super he's got sport, no... Danny. Yeah, please, <laughs> like, like, come on, go, go, go to all super sport. Go back to you. Go back to what made you great as a rider, Danny. It's like 
you don't fluke a Moto3 World title. He clearly has a vast amount of talent underneath him. Look at what him. he's done for Sandro Cortese's career. Bingo! Um, I was just uh, about another, to say another that. former Moto3 champion. Um, so, uh, so yeah, whether Danny Kent quite sees it that way at the moment, um, I'm not so sure. But um, that's the uh, direction I'd be uh, encouraging him to go in. Um, but yeah, it, it is a sad story. I know what some of you may be thinking. Don't worry, I thought it too. Can we have a, that much sympathy for a rider getting kicked out of his team when he walked out of his previous team after two races last year? I know. Um, but Danny Kent... Yeah, um, but, but Danny Kent... Um, yeah, no one deserves to be sort of you know, jettisoned from their team like this. Um, and it's not like he's can, he can really point to any sort of gross misconduct for losing his seat. He's essentially been kicked out of the team for not being fast enough. Um, but yeah. uh, but that's the cutthroat world, I'm afraid, I suppose, of Grand Prix Motorcycle Racing until some sort of... Um, I know Simon Patterson suggested some sort of riders' union or some sort of some contract recognition board like they have in mm. Formula 1 to try and prevent this from happening. Um but we shall see. Other Moto2 news, and this is much better news if you are a fan of British riders, um, because Danny Kent's not going to be on the grid, but another Brit is Jake Dixon. Um, he's going to be moving into Moto2 next season. He's going to be joining the Angel Nieto team, um, which, of course, no longer has a MotoGP squad for next season because they sold their spot on the grid to the Petronas team. Um, oh, they gave up their spot to the Petronas team. Um and have essentially moved their two spots or their two rider effort into the Moto2 class. And Jake Dixon's going to be one of them riding for the Angel Nieto team. Um, it, it's been a, a career move that Dixon's had his eye on for about a year or so now, isn't it? Because he wildcarded at Silverstone last year and then was going to wildcard the final race of the season in Valencia until he hurt himself. Um, and it's clear this is the direction Jake Dixon wants his career to go in. He doesn't want to go World Super Bikes. He wants to go MotoGP. So... The natural step for him from World for British Superbikes is to go to Moto Two, and as we said with a few riders, Drake, if there's ever a time to, you know, try your hand at Moto Two, it's now with the big reset coming for next season. The you know the penalty of being a rookie probably isn't as strong next year. No, it isn't. Everyone's everyone is somewhat starting fresh, and on top of that. Um, Dixon's already had extensive testing time on that new Triumph, which automatically puts him in an advantage over some of these riders. So, yeah, Dixon has got a good resume in multi-bikes. He's probably going to finish at that worst second in the championship in, B in BSB this year. He's a very good rider, and it's a great fit for him to go to go into Moto2. He's like, as you say, he clearly didn't want to be a superbike rider forever. He didn't want to go down the world of old superbikes. He clearly felt like he wanted to be a MotoGP rider. And I admire his ambition, and I admire the fact he's willing to bet against himself talent-wise by going straight into Moto2, the most competitive series in bike racing. Um, that is not an easy thing to do. And it's it's, it's a hot, it's it's a hard sell for anyone in the British Superbike ladder to go over to Moto Two. They don't get very many chances at that sort of level. So for Dixon to pull himself that seat, very impressive work by him and his agent. And I wish him the best because that's a that's a big opportunity for him in a brand new team with a good name behind him. And yeah, Dixon could Dixon could flourish in this class in those circumstances if that, if that ends up to that holds up. So there's a lot to look forward to there. And he could yet go there as the reigning British Superbike champion. Uh, we mm -hmm. shall see. Um, one other piece of Moto2, well, Moto2 slash Moto3 used to bring you, because it kind of does revolve again about another Brit, Sam Lowe's. Um, who, as we've told you in previous shows, is going to the Grassini Moto2 team for next season, uh, the Federal Oil team that he rode for before moving up to MotoGP. Um, and it was clear that whilst Aprilia didn't seem to rate Sam Lowe's all that highly, Grassini clearly did. Um, and they've brought him back into their Moto2 fold. 
Uh, that has had a knock-on effect for Fabio Di Gian Antonio, though. Um, and again, Dre, it leads into the murky world of Grand Prix rider contracts because it appears, um, if you believe what we hear on the well-feed commentary of MotoGP from Matt Burton and Steve Day, Fabio Di Gian Antonio's Grassini contract stated that he would be moved into Moto2 next season. Now, he's mm-hmm. now seen their spot go to Sam Lowe's and Grassini essentially telling Di Gian Antonio they want to keep him in Moto3 for next season which now leads Di Gian Antonio to want to go to court to get out of his contract. And I can't say I blame him. No, if that holds up, then that is terrible treatment for DG on that one. And if you've written this contract, you've promised him a Moto2 seat, and then all of a sudden you get a bit of shiny hood ornament syndrome, and it's like, oh, we can get Sam Lowe's again? Yeah, we're taking Sam Lowe's. Um, DG was your guy. Like, he yeah, was your almost, guy. It's almost like there was a bit of arrogance from, from the Christine team here, in that they just thought... Ah, we'll talk Fabio around. It'll be all right. Yeah, because like you know, they obviously you know they've 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 had like Jorge Martin there, and he's now going to KT year. Um, they must have thought, oh, we'll just keep DG and build around him for next year. Like he'll be our go-to guy. He'll be a murder free type. He won't mind. You made him a promise in the contract that guaranteed him a promotion, and he has his own uh, career to worry about, and he wants to progress. Exactly, and you know what? There's there's little point to DG basically. Um, you know, there's little point to DG running in next year. Like, you know, okay, he'll be a title contender again, but as proven, like, there's little point in sticking around in the class if you can move up. I think What's Aaron Cannon might be, yeah, like, like, I think Aaron Cannon might be encountering this problem very soon the way his career is going. So, oh, yeah, it, it, it just, exactly. So it's bet against yourself. And, and if DG was promised that Moto Two seat and he's not been given it, he's got every right to take him to court every right mm. so and it's a, and it's a tricky yeah, spot he's in um, now isn't it because yeah. if he if he does get out of his contract i i, I don't like saying this because i rate dg but i don't think it's guaranteed that another moto 2 team is going to sign him um, no not by any measure but equally if he's going to stick around in moto 3 next season christini's probably the best team to be in uh, because yeah. they're, they're probably going to take Martin to the title, but he's clearly, the bridges have been burned there that he doesn't want to stick around with them because they've broken a promise to him. Um, so his career is in a bit of a, you know, he's in a bit of a no man's land now in terms of which route does he go now? Does he does he stick with a team where the relationship's broken down, but it'll probably give him the best shot at the class he's in next year? Or does he, again, this will be the ultimate example of betting against yourself, does he leave that team and back himself to land a Moto2 ride next year when there aren't many out there um, for next year. He's in a similar position to Daddy Kenny in that he thought, and he, he believed he thought thought this way because he thought it was in his contract that he had his ride for next year in Moto2 already lined up. And uh, the rug's been pulled from under him. And I feel for Fabio Di Gian Antonio uh, on that That's one. It's awful. It is awful. Um, more rider news for next year. This one, though, um, surrounds the British Superbike Championship. And uh, the other rider who could be moving championships as British Superbike champion next season, Leon Haslam, who's going to the World Superbike Championship, uh, and he could be doing though so as the uh, British champion. Um, he's leaving a vacant spot at JD Speedbit Kawasaki. Now, that has been filled this week. Um, but, Dre, not by the rider that I think any of us thought would be filling it. Indeed, Glenn Irwin is going to JD Speedbit for 2019. And everyone was like, wait a minute, um, what's going on here? Um, They've essentially this poached is a... the rider from their their chief rival team in the paddock. Yeah, this is crazy because like you don't normally see this. Like like there's really a big three or was a big three in BSB, and that was them, the Kawasaki Bournemouth team, um, and you know Milwaukee, who are now 
but obviously based in in the world paddock now more than anything else. Um, for Glenn to go from the BYU's Ducati team and Paul Bird's unit to go over to to the Kawasaki guys is a, a bit of a shocker. I did not see that one coming at all, um, and it it kind of asks a lot of questions about what the state of BSB is going to be like next season. Because, well, look at it like this, like. So, like, is that a replacement for Luke Mossy, who is not confirmed for next year yet by any stretch? Because Mossy has not been able to rekindle the magic he had a couple of years ago in the showdown. I mean, he's, he had that big crash at Fruxton and has not really been the same guy since. Um, Haslam was obviously gone. Now, why has Glenn Irwin gone to Kawasaki, I wonder? Did, did he, like, like, is there news about Shaky in the Paul Bird camp that we don't know about yet? Is there been communications between them? I'm only speculating here because maybe Paul Bird knows something that we don't. Yeah, because or has Paul Bird uh, decided he would rather have Scott Redding in his team? Yeah, that's the big rumor now, is that it looks like Scott Redding could be going over there to join BSB next season. And that is intriguing to say the least because like that's that's a hell of an ace in the hole to have as a backup plan if shaky isn't coming back have scott redding lead the team instead who's got plenty of of, of top tier level experience and you know would, would be a, i think in my opinion a great fit for paul bird and and and, and the bill Ducati team so i'm not sure what the plan is right now or as mentioned before like or if uh if Paul Bird knows something that we don't about the state of Shaky Burns' condition, even though, again, we don't think anybody... If, if Shaky's words to be believed, we won't know for sure until November. But, again, maybe they know something that we don't. It's a very interesting play. We'll have to wait and see if, 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 if the Paul Bird team announce Scott Redding or anyone else, who knows, um, going to their team in the next couple of weeks before the ne- before next season starts. Um, because it's very interesting because that that is a is a shock move and especially right directly at the top for that shock move to happen. So I'm not sure what the state of play is for the rest of the field knowing that now. So that's going to be very interesting to see who goes where and if, if Paul Bird's got Redding in the back just in case. That's going to be very interesting. Yeah, it's a great pickup for GD Speedy though. It has to be said. I mean, when you, when you consider that Haslam's going, Dixon's going, um, you know. You could you could argue one way or the other between you know Brooks, um, maybe in Bradley Ray, but in terms of the championship, without those two, you're talking about the number one pick on the board for next year. Um, in the championship, Glenn Irwin is as you know he's as you know strong a rider as you are going to find uh, that is available clearly. Because um, I wouldn't expect mm-hmm. Brooks to go anywhere. He's obviously got a long running association with Yamaha, and he's only in year one with the McCann's team, so you'd expect him to stay where he is. Bradley Ray, we're not sure yet um, whether he's going to stay with the build based Suzuki team or maybe pick up a ride elsewhere in, in World Superbikes. Who knows? You will obviously have um, moved on to a lot of World Superbike teams' radars with his wildcard performance at Donington earlier in the season. Um, so we don't know yet what he's doing for next season. But for Glenn Irwin to, you know, for any rider in any championship to switch essentially between two of the class leading teams, that's a, that's big news and that's a big that's a big pull for the team that's, that's managed to sign Glenn Irwin up. Um, so, yeah, it does ask some interesting questions about the other spot within both Glenn Irwin's new team for next season and the team he's leaving behind. Um, and we'll no doubt get the answers to those questions in the coming weeks. Uh, let's look ahead to this weekend, though. Um, BSB are at Assen. It's the uh, next installment in the battle for the championship, which is technically between six riders, but in all probability between two, Haslam and Dixon. Um, Dixon really has to make sure that he keeps on winning and keeps reducing that gap and go to Brands Hatch with something of a chance and just try and plant some kind of nerves in the head um, of Leon Haslam. 
Um, but we're going to do a lot of our focusing for this weekend, though, on what's happening in France and at Magny Corps. Um, basically, smack bang in the centre of France. It is in the middle of nowhere um, in France. It's Magny Corps, but it's a great racetrack nonetheless. And it's going to it's going to see history this weekend. It's going to see championships decided. Starting with, Dre, the Superstock 1000 European Championship, which, as we've discovered today as we record this, will officially be the final championship in the history of this class. Indeed, yes. The Superstock 1000 Championship will be no more after this season. It looks like it could be making way for a general restructure of the race weekend, as Greg Haynes kind of alluded to on Twitter earlier today. Um, it's looking like they could be going towards the road of maybe two Supersport races, one on a Saturday, and basically enhancing the, the race weekend and having more championship races in other leagues, which I think I think is I think that does make sense. I think Superstock 1000 has always been the least cared about championship of the four that's on the World Superbike calendar and on the program. I think that's always been the one that's 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 made the most sense. Um, so there's been one that's been watched the least. So yeah, I think that's going to be uh, interesting to see how they restructure it. But it's a shame because like. It's not impossible to make a name for yourself out of that championship, as, as, as Danilo Petrucci proved, as Frankie Morbidelli both proved as well, because they both came, they both came from from, from that side of the biking world. So it, it, it is his name from that class as well. Yep, Top Rack as well came from Superstock One Thousand as well. So there has been some quality riders that have come through that group. I mean, Marcus Reiterberger's favorite to win the title this weekend, and he is a guy that has done very well for himself in the Superbike paddock for sure um, in the past as well. So, like, it's a series that, you know, the simplistic nature of it and the fact that, you know, it's, it's bikes you can buy off the shelf um, is a competitive entry-level motorsport that a lot of, you know, smaller teams can get into. So it's a shame to see it go. Um, the way of Superstock 600, and that's you know, that's gone on the world calendar as well. So it's a shame. I I, I, I do look forward to seeing what they do to get around that. But uh, it is a shame the championship was going because it, it did foster some good riders, and uh, hopefully there's a way around it soon. Yeah, I think it, it it makes sense on on several levels. I think in terms of the way Dorna clearly sees the World Superbike program as a whole. They want to try and make it similar to MotoGP in that there is a clear, defined, lightweight class, middleweight class, premier class. Um, mm -hmm. And Superstock 1000 kind of sort of sits in a bit of a no-man's land in that. And it's a, it's kind of between Supersport and Superbike, but no rider really sees it as part of that ladder. You, know, you don't see a mm -hmm. rider go from Supersport to Superstock before they go Superbike. Um, so it doesn't really serve that particular purpose. Um, you just need to look at a lot of the riders who are in this class. They've been around forever. The likes of Roberto Tamburini, um, you know, Luca Vitali, uh, Ricardo Russo, Florio Marino, mm -hmm. who was chanting for the championship towards the end of the season last year, uh, Luca Salvadori, all predominantly Italian riders. Um, it's mm -hmm. become a bit of an Italian cup in many respects, um, even though a German looks yep. like he's going to win it. Um, it. It's also a class that... You know, grid numbers have been falling. I think there've been only it's been kind of MotoGP 2011 style grid numbers this season, where we've only had sort of 17, 18 riders on the grid for most races this season, uh, which right. is a shame. You know, grid numbers have been on the wane, and I do wonder as well. With there's clearly a will for the superbike class, and it's kind of been happening already in recent years, hasn't it? Where the class has been going to more super stock style regulations, much more simplified yeah. electronics and such like. So 
if it's going to head, if the super bike regulations are going to head much more in the direction of super stock, then then what is super stock there for? Um, in in that exactly. sense. Um, so I don't think the class. I think the class has become rather redundant in the end, um, which is a shame in one sense because, as, as Dre mentioned, a lot of good riders are coming from this class and that has produced some great racing, in particular this year. Um, but what it means is that either Marcus Reiterberger, uh, the German, Roberto Tamburini, the Italian, or Maximilian Schieb, the Chilean, uh, will go down in history as the final ever Superstock 1000 European champion for now at least. Reiterberger leads by 18 points over Tamburini going in and 19 over Sheeb, which means, um, if you don't know your math and you don't know your point systems, Marcus Reiterberger only needs to finish in uh, ninth position, based on how many races he's won this season to Tamburini. Ninth position would win him the championship uh, on the tiebreaker, even if Tamburini wins the race. Um, if Tamburini uh, fails to finish in the top two, um, and Sheep feels fish in the top two, then Reiterberger can basically take the day off and still win the title. Yes. Uh, that's what it looks like in that class. Uh, and it will be the first of the four races to take place on Sunday in the uh, new revised schedule that we have on the Sunday. The next of them uh, is the Super Sport 300 race and the four-way championship decider um, in the lightweight class. Anna Carrasco on 90 points, 10 clear of Scott Drew in second. Mika Perez is third on 72 points, 18 off the lead. Um, and then Luca Grunwald, um, who's a couple of points further back. He's on uh, 68 points, so he's 22 back um, with four races to go. Carrasco, Daru, and Perez on Kawasaki's. Grunwald on the KTM. Uh, now, I have to say, Dre, obviously a lot of neutrals will be uh, pulling very hard for Carrasco here, understandably so. Um, as she yes. likes to become the first female world champion on a solo motorcycle. That's one clarification we yeah. need to put in there. Um, because there cheers, was a Greg. there was a woman, yeah, cheers, Greg, who uh, clarified this week that there was a woman um, as a passenger of a sidecar duo who did win a world championship at FIM motorcycle world championship level. Um, but Carrasco mm-hmm. will be the first solo to do it um, at this level. Have to say, though, 10 ahead of Daru, 18 ahead of Perez, 22 ahead of Grunwald. The way those four riders' results have been trending, I think this is impossible to call. No, no, no I, I got nothing for you. Like, like Carrasco probably is favourite with that 10-point advantage, but like Scott Derue can win any given 300 race on paper, and his results have been good lately. Um, yeah, he started in this class very well. Grunwald's been up there. They've all been up there at some point or another. And again, as mentioned, the rule change. Carrasco has genuinely struggled, um, which is a problem for which is a problem for. And then her lead was twenty points at one point, and it's hemorrhaged um, over the last few races. I, I like. I mean, if I had to guess, I think Carrasco will hold on by a couple of points. Um, but I think the way it, I think the room might have just ran out of rounds by the end of. The- by the end of the, by the end of the championship to chase her down, but like it would not surprise me if the Rue came out on top and won the championship. That's how I look at it anyway, because like like I think the, the form the form book states the Rue, but ten points might be too big an ask. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's gonna be one of those races where we're gonna need that live championship graphic that comes up on the screen to uh, kind of guide us through the race because there are a lot of moving parts in this. Uh, but to try and simplify it as best we can, it would probably be best to explain what each rider needs to do um, in this race. If Anna Carrasco finishes on the podium, she's the champion, whatever Daru, Perez and Grunwald do. Um, obviously, if she finishes slightly lower than that, um, it gets slightly complicated. For Scott Daru to win the championship, he must win the race and hope that Anna Carrasco is outside the top three. 
equally, he could finish second um, and hope that Carrasco is lower than sixth. Um, if he does that, he would still be champion, whatever Perez or Grunwald do. Um, for Perez to win the championship, he has to finish in the top two. Um, if he wins the race, he needs Carrasco to be lower than ninth. Um, and he would need Daru to be lower than second. Um, if he finishes second, obviously, you'd have to reduce Carrasco and Daru's positions by five in that respect. And Luca Grunwald, if he wants to win the championship, he needs snookers, basically. Um, but if I was to equate that to points, he needs to win the race or nothing else. Nothing else would be enough. Um, but if Grunwald yeah. wins the race, he would need Anna Carrasco um, to finish uh, lower than 12th. Um, because Grunwald would draw level with Carrasco on two wins for the season and would beat her on the uh, tiebreaker. Um, he would need Scott DeRue to be lower than fourth, and he would need Mika Perez. Um, well, Mika Perez could finish second, and that wouldn't be enough. So that is how it sits. There are a lot of moving parts in this, um, but essentially Carrasco needs to finish on the podium to be the champion, which the way he's been going lately is no guarantee. Uh, the Supersport class cannot be decided this weekend. It is still very much wide open. Um, between four riders, really, at the moment, in all probability. Those four being uh, Cortese, Cluzel, Caracasulo, who's won the last two races, don't forget. Um, and um, Randy Krimenacker, the fourth of the Outer riders who's involved. It looks like Mahia, certainly, and in all probability, De Rosa are too far back now. Um, looks but like, one of the yeah. championship that looks like it will be decided this weekend, in fact, we'd all be amazed if it doesn't, is the World Superbike Championship. Because I think, Dre, uh, when we record episode 81, this time next week... Uh, I think it's highly likely we're going to be celebrating the first ride ever to win four consecutive World Superbike Championships. Jonathan Ray. Yeah, book it. I, I, I think we're just about done here. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Ray did enough to take it in race one. If he wins it, Chaz Davies has to finish in second. Otherwise, it's game over right there. And then on the Saturday... Um, and Chaz is not is still recovering from the collarbone. He's he's had three straight fourth places. Um, it's looking good for Johnny. It really is. He's looking good. He can win it on Saturday afternoon and get the special T-shirts out because you, you, you know the drill. They're getting prepared for this, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I think I think you can just about book it that Jonathan will be leaving Magni Cora as a four-time consecutive world champion, which has never been done in in, in World Superbikes. It, it would truly put him in a field of his own in 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 that regard. And yeah, well, what can you say? It'd be the coronation of yet another, but maybe the greatest year of Ray's dominance yet, given the rule that was specifically designed to cripple him this year. And if anything, he's put the hammer down and beaten them even more this year. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy how that's just turned out. And uh, yeah, um, the, the way it's gone, I, I don't see anything other than Ray leaving Magni champion either way probably on saturday afternoon to be honest yeah it's looking like it i think if anything it just has the the opposite effect doesn't it in that it, it you know jonathan ray with every season that goes by is just as dominant with a much further stacked deck against him um and yeah, he still continues to maintain that level of dominance which just shows how good he is we will likely um give you the full um you know appreciation society uh, episode of jonathan ray on next week's show just in time for his new autobiography coming out um, it's as if it was that meant to be. shameless. Yeah, <laughs> as if he as if he's going to win his championship in the same week he releases a book. Um, you know, he's, 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 he's even that he's even that good uh, these days that he can time these things. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. we will do all that next week on episode eighty-one. Uh, it looks like, in all probability, we are going to have three new champions to talk about next week. Two guaranteed in Stock Thousand and Super Spot Three Hundred, but on probability one in Super Bike as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be back next week, as I mentioned, for episode eighty-one. Uh, of Bike Patreon Motorsport 101, as well as uh, episode 163 
uh, of yep. Motorsport 101 as Formula 1 heads to, um, well, if it's not its least popular venue, it's certainly down there, um, Sochi in Russia. Um, and Dre might like it a little bit more if uh, Sebastian Vettel comes through and uh, picks up the W this weekend. got to say, Dre kind of has to. Yeah, as you as you said last week, I, I I think it's fair to say forty back with six races to play, we're at the snooker's required stage here for for Sebastian to you know, like the most likely needs a Hamilton DNF. Yeah, he probably needs a Hamilton DNF, some sort of outside shenanigans to realistically have a shot here now to win the title. So, uh, Kimmy, torpedo into turn two, please. Um, it's make to be Kimmy, make... both the Red Bulls are gonna be at the back. Yeah, make 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 sure you hit the right part of him this time, unlike Silverstone. <laughs> but um, no, in all seriousness, yeah, I mean it, it's looking. And my God, I've seen the tweets on, on previewing this weekend, and my every tweet is like, "Oh, Vettel needs to win. Vettel needs to do this. The pressure on Vettel, Vettel to be off the charts." I'm like, Jesus Christ, people! And we wonder why Nico Rosberg retired. Mm. Um, <laughs> It's 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 heavy duty this weekend. It is all in on the Sebastian now must win hype train. So uh, it's going to be a stressful weekend. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. But yeah, Sebastian really this seems this seems like last chance saloon for him to realistically win the title. Um, just one problem: Mercedes has won every year since we started going to Russia in 2014, and the first time they did it, Mercedes powered cars had a had every car in the top five. It was. Uh, it's been a Merck's trap for quite some time, but without the power advantage they, that they've had mm-hmm. before, maybe, just maybe, Sebastian sticks his nose in. Yeah, I, and, I, never, I, never, do, I never do worry about that particularly, because I, I think since 2014, just about every track's been a Merck track. Because <laughs> mm. uh, they've just been that dominant. But, but yeah, Ferrari are drinking in the last chance saloon this weekend, uh, it Agreed. appears. Um, they need to beat Mercedes, and they probably need a 1-2 um, this weekend. Um, to really put some sort of dent in Lewis Hamilton's championship lead. Whatever happens, we'll be back, though, for episode 163 of Motorsport 101 next week uh, to review mm-hmm. whatever does happen in Sochi, um, and we'll be able to tell you if the championship is indeed still alive or not. Um, as I mentioned, we'll be back as well for episode 81 of Bike Live next week here in Motorsport 101, where we expect to be acclaiming a new World Superbike champion. This week, though, we acclaimed the rider who took another step towards a seventh Grand Prix Motorcycle Racing World title, Mark Marquez. Uh, who, as I say, had a corner named after him at Aragon last weekend, essentially owned the whole circuit. Uh, We'll see you again next week.